You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 40. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www or www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Infragistics, visualizing the Internet of Things and making sense of big data. The Internet of Things, mobility, and connected systems are driving the need for big data solutions. It is imperative to help your users and customers make better decisions faster than ever before. Experts in data visualization, Infragistics developer tools drive custom app development for any data visualization scenario on any platform. And Report Plus is an enterprise-ready, self-service BI dashboard solution that opens up your enterprise for big data for end-user consumption. Head over to www.infragistics.com today and get your free trial. Okay, so let's get into the podcast news here. So first up, I got to say, like, we thought that last time the reviews were awesome, and they, they doubled down this time. It was just as awesome. So I, do you want me to try to read these again? Do no, you, no, you think I'll, it's comical it. enough if I do it? I, I think people don't. Yeah, I haven't even talked yet this episode. It's my turn. <laughs> oh, oh, look at this. Joe That's stepping right, Stepping in. up. Stepping up. <laughs> really, I just wanted to say Bebop6585 because uh, it's awesome. Uh, also, Phil Britton, Barry Carey, Gnu Henson, tells, tells NY. Elsney, Eskimo Dragon 13, Jordan G. Lee, Archimedes, J. Psycho, Vodkadam, Redwin, Lowell Moore, J. Rydell, Greg Pakes. <gasps> Sorry, I had to take a breath there because there's so many names. Thank you so much. And now it's just for iTunes. We also had a few on Stitcher, uh, FPW23, CD Eguia, Cyberpod, Manrique, and Foop Pfeiffer. Foop These Pfeiffer? are awesome names. I think it's Foop Pfiffer. Like, you did a much better job of pronouncing That's why I thought it would be comical if I had to pronounce some of these again. <laughs> Although, I got to say, yeah. when it comes to, like, any type of DOM manipulation, Vodka DOM is definitely my favorite kind of DOM that if I have to <laughs> manipulate a DOM, that's the one I want to uh, go with. True that. Man. It, yeah, dude. I also like Gnu Henson. That, that's good. And I'm so pr- I, I should get a high five for figuring out Archimedes on the fly there. Oh, yeah. Man, there were... Excellent, excellent written reviews in those two. So yeah. thank you guys for taking the time and doing that. It, we really do appreciate it. We say it every single time, and we'll continue to say and it. And we so mean it every time, We too. really do. So thank you very much for doing that. And for all of you who haven't done it yet, come join us over on Slack, man. The conversations are just getting better and better. They're, oh, man, there's been some great ones. Like the Dev Talk channel. Yes. Definitely one of my favorite channels. Yeah, that one's excellent. We've got a nice gear channel where everybody talks about things that they're either programming for or thinking about getting to program for. There, there's some good stuff. And if you want some comic relief, you can just read James constantly on the flow so yeah yeah i mean it was awesome yeah there's there's seriously a ton of value happening over there and you know please do send us an invite on or, or no but you you can send us an invite but i don't know what to if you'll send us your email address we'll send you an invite into the slack channel so so you can send us an uh, email at comments at codingblocks.net or if you prefer to send us a dm via twitter you can send it that way, just as long as you send us your email address, and then we can send you the invite via Slack, and then you can join the fun. Yep, it's been it's really been excellent. So, 
Uh, and don't forget the jobs channel. Oh man, been the- uh, posting some job leads, and uh, I know there's a lot of people from all over the the world in here. But uh, I kind of like the idea that um, of promoting uh, at least remote jobs in there, if nothing else, you know, and, and uh, it's kind of cool. Yep, and I anybody's free to post in there. Uh, I've posted several that I get hit up on LinkedIn or whatever. So, you know, it, if you have something or you know of a position that needs to be filled, f- please do feel free to go in there. We don't want it to turn into some sort of you know spammy type thing but you know real things go ahead and throw in there um but next up we got an email from magnus and this was an interesting email that we just received the other day and i thought it was worth talking about briefly here in the in the news section basically he does a lot of c plus plus and game development type stuff and he said when he went looking for a job like basically every job out there is requiring some sort of web programming like javascript or 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 something like that and he's like do i really need to learn this stuff i mean he said he's not into it but and then he also did a follow-up email after i replied and he said you know the problem is he lives in a country where like basically to get a job programming, you have to have a master's degree. Like a bachelor's isn't even enough. And he asked, you know, is it the same over there in the States? So there's several questions rolled up there. And I think that'd be a great talking point. And, you know, seeing as how we do seem to have people all over the world listening, I mean, you know, let, let's see what we can do here. Um, I wanted to point out that the uh, Stack Overflow survey just came out and it had actually a pretty big section on um, types of jobs. And uh, like you mentioned, Alan, web developer was at the tippy top by far. So it's not a bad area to have some skills in, even if you don't love it. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into making a website besides just the HTML and CSS. You know, there's a lot of scalability issues and um, just the the whole pipeline and everything. And uh, there's a lot of cool, interesting challenges there, even if you don't necessarily like the medium itself. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that, you know, the sad fact is, is if you're looking for a, pro, uh, a programming job, then by far and away, the majority of the jobs you're going to find are going to be for uh, websites, you know, web development. Next after that, you're going to probably have find the next, I would guess that the next biggest or percentage of jobs that you're going to find that aren't web programming are going to be either uh, Android or iOS. So if you like one of those two things, that's a hot market. So it's definitely not a bad place to be. If you want to do specifically game development, that's a small market, yeah. right? And and you're really tied into, you know, a few dev shops that, that, you know, make enough money to be able to support that kind of thing, right? And I'm also assuming that by game development, when we're talking about like desktop, you know, game development. He didn't go not into Not iOS it. or right. Android type game development. But, right. You know, or and then, and then, then the list starts to get smaller. You know, if you're talking about like, um, operating systems. So, like, if you wanted to work at Microsoft, work in a Windows, like, you know, it's just smaller and smaller pieces of the overall pie that you that you start cutting at. So, yeah, unfortunately, I would say yeah, you need to you need to pick up some of that. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I when I wrote them back, my take was if if web development isn't your thing, then. And just to be clear, like when we say websites, people have this idea that it's just HTML, CSS, whatever. Okay, if it's just a website, maybe. But typically when you get a programming job, it's web applications, right? It's usually something that has some sort of back end that you're supporting, some database, all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of moving pieces to it. But I will say, like, if your heart is truly in game development, then I don't know that I would tell somebody to go learn JavaScript or anything just to be able to get a job, right? It, it's well, it's such I mean, a tough sell. 
Yeah, but here's the reason why here, that I'm thinking this though is that like, let's say, let's say in a in a hypothetical you know best of world situation, you get that dream job, right? And you know, let's say it was NeverSoft as just an example company, right? Right. So you get a job at NeverSoft, uh, you know, doing game development for them, and then. I don't know. Let's just say that something bad happened in Neversoft and they go through a round of layoffs. And unfortunately your name got in that pile, right? Mm-hmm. You got to go start looking for them the next job, right? Well, you're going to start putting on. your name out there as having no web development at all. No experience, no skills in it. Right. That's why I'm saying like, y- you need to, you need to pay attention to it. It's kind of a big thing. Right. Uh, it's so hard. I mean, it's almost, uh, I guess for me, because I actually enjoy a lot of the aspects of web application work, it's not a big deal. But but there are definitely things that people will throw out that they're like, hey, why don't you learn X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I don't want to, right? And I guess because I work in an area where there is a ton of demand, it it works out for me. So I don't know how it how I would be. If I was truly in love with game development, doing C++ and saying, yeah, I don't really want to do JavaScript, right? I mean, Joe, what about you? What are your thoughts? I'm still uh, stuck looking at Neversoft video games. Tony Hawk, Pro Skater 2. <laughs> I got a little derailed. But no, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. You know, if I, like I for in particular, don't love HTML and CSS. And a lot of things are going wrong with being a web developer. But I've also been a web developer for a long time. And there's a lot of different areas to, to work in. And so it kind of depends on what type of things you don't like about working on the web and maybe seeing if there are some newer technologies or maybe different ways of working that kind of augment the things that you do like. That's interesting, right? Yeah, you could work on the business end of web applications and then that way you're doing things that are more closely related or even like big data type stuff, right? Like there's a lot of problems to be solved there. Or are we talking about like server side yeah, like server-side type stuff, right? Because if you're doing batch processing, kind of like like those type of jobs. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what would actually like satisfy his appetite, right? Like there's a certain type of programming that each person kind of... Well, I mean, I think he specifically said game development. It is, but what Web part GL? of it? What? Yeah, is it is it just yeah, the graphical C++, piece? C++, OpenGL, Assembly, Java, and, and libraries to make games. So, I mean, he's clearly into the game development world. Yeah, I mean, and you can do that on the web too, right? Like, there oh, are actually, actually game engines on the web. Let me correct that, because he, he says C++. C++. Oh, not C++. So, C and C++. Well, it was both. Right. Because and because then the next question that I was about to ask myself, but then I rechecked his notes, was that most games are in C, right? But I don't know. Like, if I was going to do a game, I'd just do Unity, but that's because I'm lazy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a tough one. And then on the education question, right? So, I think here in the States, it might be slightly different. I mean, going back to that survey that Joe brought up a minute ago, like, I think more than half the people were self-educated. They were self-taught developers. Oh, it was way more than half. It was, it? it was high. Like 80. It was Something. high. Yeah, but it's 70, but um, there's overlap. So you could have identified as self-taught and had a bachelor's. Okay, fair enough. But I, So I think the better number to look at there is um, who has a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. And it was 34%, and there's BA in Computer Science or a related field was another 8%. So basically, forty depending on how yeah. So you're looking around forty depending on how people kind of did it, and that's just for the ba- for the bachelors. And so masters was twenty percent. So yeah, so I mean that's kind of interesting. I mean, um, 
a lot of the people, for instance, like Joe, you didn't end up finishing your bachelor's, right? Right, and, correct. And I finished mine, but well after I'd been programming for years. Like it was basically for me, it was nothing more than to check that box so that if my name ever did end up in a resume pile somewhere, mine wasn't just going to get discarded because I didn't have that piece of paper. So literally, I had already been programming for a long time before I did this. So it may be region specific. Like here in the States, I, I definitely feel like if you're one of those people that shows a high aptitude for it, you don't necessarily need a degree. Now, it might make it a little bit tougher for you to even get your foot in the door because they're going to be looking at a bunch, you know, they got 100 people over here with degrees and then the stack over here with people that don't. And for employment, a lot of places will have that requirement that, you know, you have a bachelor's or equivalent. And so sometimes you kind of get discarded before yeah, you, it I, ever happens. I really feel like those degrees are like in your first few years yeah. of, you know, whatever your career is. Totally. Right. Once, once you get, you know, past year five, then I don't know that it matters as much. Yeah. It's usually at that point, references, accomplishments, um, you know, it, networking. What's what you're currently doing. Like, yeah. you know, the things that you learned five years ago, it might, I mean, you might have covered technologies that we don't really care about today so much. I mean, hopefully you got good, strong foundational patterns and things like that. But, yeah. Uh, also curious, too, um, boot camps show up as like 6.5%. I wonder whether it's going to be like, say, five years from now. You know, there definitely seem to be a lot of those springing up. And I hear good things about the uh, graduates. So, Well, it makes sense, too, right? Because a lot of those boot camps, they are not cheap. And a lot of them guarantee placement for people afterwards right like if you if you were one of those people that did something they'll be like hey we're going to hook you up with a job now i don't know what kind of level it's at like i, I doubt you're going to be jumping into a super duper high paying job when if this is your first go around but you know that's that's a good point too well for all the all the self-taught developers out there i've got a i got a tip for you then at the at the during the tips section of the show <laughs> so yeah but it's just I just think it's interesting to think that a company might think that someone who's spent, say, six weeks, you know, working exclusively on well, Ruby on Rails is, you know, more or as valuable as a college graduate, to, you know, at least to them for that, for what they need. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see how that uh, continues to evolve. Yeah, I mean, we've all been involved with interviewing people. And I will say, like, a lot of times people coming out of college, like, you, you have them sit down and try and do you know, a problem on the board, you know, Hey, show me, uh, you know, how you would model this particular problem. Right. And they'll struggle through it. But then somebody that sat through a boot camp for, you know, we'll call it six weeks where they are literally just hardcore programming and trying to create something. It's a little bit different than taking a test here and there. So there's definitely some value and they pick up some valuable skills as well. So, yeah. yeah so with that, um, you know, like we said, uh, I think Joe tweeted out the Stack Overflow uh, developer survey was out. Got a little bit early on that one, didn't you, Joe? <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> they yanked so, it back. Uh, yeah, they retracted it and then put it back up. So that just means you get to tweet it twice. Right. I'm going to tweet it again right now. Yeah, yeah three times. Thrice. Nice. Thrice. Nice. Oh, and then one other thing that came up on our Slack channel that I thought was interesting, and and a lot of people will say things like this and it and this is just my take and this is the reason I wanted to bring it up if somebody says if we had had unit tests we would have caught that problem 
that problem has to be a problem with the code, right? A unit test is made to test that the code that was written does what you think that code should do. However, writing a unit test to cover a business case that wasn't implemented the right way is not valuable. So, But you can have unit tests for your business rules too. You can, but that's what I'm saying. Like when you hear somebody say, um, so basically somebody implements something wrong, a unit test is not going to catch that. Well, no. In that case, the unit test is just going to prove that it's... That it's working it's the working way you designed correctly. Right. And that's that's my whole point. Like, you can't just say things in a vacuum, right? Like, when, when you... But that sounds like a problem of, like, you're describing not having valuable unit tests then. No. You not have it. You don't have a business processes reviewed properly, right? And that's... We've talked about this before with having tools that allow... Uh, users to be able to verify a unit Spec test. Flow, we've talked about. Right. I think Cucumber was the JavaScript version of it. But that's that's kind of my point is just saying if you are a development manager or something, oh, if we had, had unit tests, it would have caught that. No, no, no. If you implement the business rule that was made and you have unit tests to cover your code and all those things are online, then yeah, you'll catch these problems before they go out, right? Possibly. Yes, possibly. That's best case scenario. But it's just, I don't know. That that was one thing I wanted to bring up because I, I hear a lot of times people will just throw out buzzwords like, if you do this, and you wouldn't have had this problem. And I'm like, no, that's not necessarily true. The developers have to understand the business problem first so that they can actually design it properly. And that's where we talked about this before with test-driven development. Well, I was about to bring that up. If you start first so that you truly understand the business problem, before you even start writing the code, right? Like you write your unit test cases first so that as you implement your code, it, it adheres to that. That makes a lot of sense. But I just wanted to, to throw that out there. Like don't just make statements, you know, kind of broad sweeping statements that are, are true only if you meet these certain criteria, you know? Well, you got to own it, right? Like, I make so many mistakes all the time, and uh, I'm sure I don't all, all of them because uh, I would never get any work done. But I mean, it, when you do make a mistake, and trust me, if you're programming professionally, you're going to make so many, so many millions of mistakes a day that you just got to get used to just kind of uh, taking it and owning it and, and fixing it. Yep. Yeah. And I not mean, blaming it on unit tests. That's the bigger thing, though. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about owning owning yes. things before. I think. Um, most recently, during the conversation about the the twelve factor app, yeah, it was in there. So, so. anyway, all right, what's our next? All right, well, we're going to be continuing on. This is the final part of our how to be a programmer series. This is how to be an advanced programmer. Uh, as we continue on with Robert L. Reed's book, and we will have uh, links to. Um, the latest version of his book that you can uh, check that out or essay, I guess this is what, it, what he book. called it. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Although I um, wanted to point out too, um, you know, so this book divided into beginner, intermediate and advanced tonight. We're doing advanced uh, in Slack. We had quite a bit of conversation around at one point, does a developer go from like a junior to senior? And so if I were to kind of try and take those type of that type of terminology and apply it to this book, would you guys say, like junior is beginner, senior is intermediate, and then maybe like fellow senior senior, maybe architect, maybe project or maybe programming lead would be the advanced. That's maybe kind of. I mean, a lot of these topics we're going to touch on tonight seem to be 
a lot about developing people under you and that kind of thing. Uh, yep. So maybe, but the only problem I have with that is an architect is usually still highly involved in design and may not necessarily be the develop the the person development person. You, you know, the guy that's trying to build up people under him. You know, a lot of times I see that more in a managerial type role. So it's hard to say, but I do think that one of the topics that came up with that was, is it time? Is it experience? To me, like if, if I, I'd have no problem calling a 25 year old, a senior level developer, if they had truly experienced a lot, you know what I'm saying? Like they, they knew how the tiers of applications are supposed to work, the design, the architecture, how things fit together, how to make things faster, all that. Like I think senior is a level of comprehension and understanding of problems that you deal with in software development, right? So it's not necessarily, hey, you're you're 35 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old. That that to me is not a senior developer. And an architect could also be a young person, right? Somebody that truly understands how all the pieces fit together. Like they're the ones that 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 know how to make these things work. So I will say. I've always personally hated the titles junior developer and senior developer only because it does immediately draw age yeah. because you think, you think of like, well, how long have you been doing this? Right. right. And that's, that's a you know measure of time and it's not necessarily because you immediately think of a measure of time and not instead of a measure of skill, I've never liked those titles. So kind of like the Amazon way where they'll have like a software development engineer one, two, and three that you'd prefer more like that, right? Like you've gone up the levels as opposed to which, well, which like, sophomore, okay, junior. If you were a fellow, right? Like right. That's a title that uh, you, that's the highest title that you could have at Microsoft and at IBM. Um, I'm not sure where else, but you know, that's an example of like, that one doesn't bother me. I guess, you know, that one's probably not uh it's too not as clear though. Friendly for for women. I don't know right. if they would want to be called a fellow. Hmm. Interesting. But you know that that's the only that title as an example though doesn't bother me as bad as junior and senior. Hmm. Yeah. So just food for thought. Yep. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think. Yeah. Definitely. Hey. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so let's get into. Uh, the first section, technological judgment. How to tell the hard from the impossible. Love this part because apparently everything I do um, is impossible. <laughs> so I, it basically boils down to um, the quote here is from the point of view of most working programmers, something is impossible if it is either uh, if either it cannot be grown from a simple system or it cannot be estimated. So I'm either bad at estimating or I do the impossible all the time. <laughs> uh. Uh, they do go on to uh, describe it, but I just kind of um, plucked that out because it was funny. But um, the example that I really liked um, from this section talking about what they mean is basically um, you kind of imagine that you had a system where your goal was to compute um, the most attractive hairstyle style and color for a person. Um, then, you know, that's an impossible problem. And your job as a programmer is to take that impossible goal and say, well, you know what? If um, we did this and we did that, we could maybe solve this pr solution or solve this problem 75% of the way. And that's enough to uh, make a lot of money and keep this ball rolling. And, you know... So your job is to... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're right. I, it was 
that was one of the interesting things about this is impossible didn't mean that it couldn't be done. It meant that there was no way to scope the thing, right? That's really what it all seemed to be is, okay, if you start trying to build this, you know, enormous thing, but you have no way to scope it down to where you can ever make any tangible progress, then it's impossible. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the sections that I had uh, made note of was if there's not a crisp definition of success, you will not succeed. Which yep. kind of goes so in line with what define that. Yeah, exactly. It goes in line with what Joe was saying was that, you know, you take this vague requirement that's impossible to meet and then you start whittling away at it until you can make a clear definition of this is the goal line. Yep. If we get here, yeah, imagine like, we're good. Sorry, I'm bad about stepping today. Sorry, guys. You should, we need to get a little buzzer for me. <laughs> but uh, I was just thinking, uh, you know, Google's kind of primary function is to help people find things. That's an impossible problem. But searching things based on backlinks or say Google Maps, you know, those are um, those are partial solutions to an impossible problem. Right, matching on keywords. Well, that's iterating, right? You iterate towards creating something impossible, and so that makes the other things, you know, doable. So that's pretty much it. All right, well, let's move on to how to utilize embedded languages. Huh? Right. Yeah, I got a little lost on this one, but then I started. Uh, well, it wasn't so much loss; it's just I've never had an experience of, with really embedding a language into something, and so I kind of struggled with it initially until I thought about, um, you know, there have definitely been times where I've exposed SQL and you know some sort of uh, back admin piece uh, or you know even some JavaScript functionality. But well, it's it's not really the same thing. It's funny that you said SQL because you know when. I was thinking of a, a very similar type of example, that, but I also added into that HTML because there have been some, you know, maybe gross times or, you know, <laughs> APIs or UIs where, like, that kind of thing has been exposed to, you know, allow an, a user to add or edit or whatever. Um, but I've never had the case where, like, he was talking about, you know, embedding a language into, like, a text editor Right, right. Like, yeah, I've, I haven't had the need to do that. Same here. Like what this whole section struck me as is like sublime with being able to do macros or something in there, like writing your own, your own things. And I, I don't know. Like I've never really decided to do it. And one of the important things he points out in here is it's dangerous to do it to a certain degree because if you try to embed a language in something, let's say that you create your own text editor, right, and you embed a language in there. Is that something other programmers are going to want to learn? Especially if it's not something common. Well, that was that was why he was saying use one that's already existed that right. already existed. Yeah. And, and so that's that's one of the things is if you're trying to do it and, and text editors are the things that come to mind because like your notepad plus plus, your sublime text, you know, other IDEs typically have some sort of scripting language in them that you can use to leverage things. So that was the closest thing that I could think here. And the other thing would be like if you're actually doing truly embedded programming on a device, like IoT might become a big deal with this kind of thing here in the near future. Um, yeah. I also thought video games, like Warcraft uh, has, I think, Lua embedded into it. So you, people can make mod, uh, modifications or mods and um, they basically limit the features of the language and kind of lock it down to a like a sandbox environment. But people like game developers, you know, who work for Blizzard can do things with this environment for their UI, but also they, uh, you know, uh, allow the people to use a portion of that language to make their own stuff. Hmm. Well, I mean, even if it wasn't like a, 
like a full on language. Let's just say it was just more of like a, um, I think you made a reference to like a scripting type language. Like, let's just say if it was something of a markup style, right? You know, have you ever had a situation where like you've created your own quote markup for some simple field, you know, and, and, you know, to tell the user like, Hey, you know, I'm, maybe you don't want to give them access to raw HTML or something like that. Right. And so you give them something of a templating type of markup that they could use. Right. Yeah. But yep. then that's something else that they have to learn. And he makes this great point of saying like, Hey, it's a joy to create a new language. Right. But we should not let that blind us to the needs of the user. Right. So, you know, you might think that creating that new templating, you know, engine in this case, I hate to call it that, but pretty close. You yeah. Know, whatever that, that, that scripting templating style language is like you, you know, you're having fun and you think that you might be helping people, but really are you? Cause now you're giving them something else to learn. Now in that statement that I just said, how many JavaScript frameworks did I just insult <laughs> because they created a new templating Handle framework? Bars. Mustache. Egg shit, yeah. Right. It goes on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that, but people like learning new JavaScript frameworks every day. All right. So, uh. <laughs> all right. So the next one is choosing languages, right? Yeah. I thought this was interesting too. I, I, I do feel like this kind of, um, almost should be choosing languages and frameworks now. And if I were a better person, I might consider um, doing a pull request because uh, choosing languages, like a lot of times and for a lot of companies, there's not a whole lot of choice. You've either kind of bought into one ecosystem or another. And so your, your language choices are usually pretty limited. And, you know, a lot of it depends on things like cost, hireability, stability, of the platform, um, you know, the, the future, how's it, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, licensing, so choosing an actual language doesn't really seem that important to me. But whether I'm going to go with, say, Ember or Angular, now that's a decision that I'm much more likely to make in the next couple months or, you know, whatever. Well, yeah. you say Angular. I'm sorry, Alan. No, go but ahead. the, you know, there was one quote in here that I know is going to, uh, you know, drive it home for Alan here. That often managers are driven by the need to be able to hire programmers with experience in a given language. And Angular was the one thing that came to mind right away yeah and here's the truth of it right like you can try and do that but it it, i mean inevitably you may or may not it's hit or miss right like hiring for a particular language you don't know the skill set of that person until they get in there and that's the god's honest truth for any of it so but i did before before we go too far like he was kind of brutal on this one like one of the things I highlighted was generally this issue is dictated by pointy haired bosses uh, who are making a political decision rather than a technological decision and like the courage to promote an unconventional tool, even when they know often with firsthand knowledge that the less accepted tool is best. Now I do want to say to be fair, a lot of times these pointy haired bosses don't really have a choice. No, wait a minute. We you, we gotta believe that he's talking about Dilbert here. He right? is absolutely right, <laughs> but but that's kind of what I'm saying though. Like I mean, to what Joe's point was a minute ago, if you are a Microsoft shop, are you just gonna go do Java? Like, are you going to invest in a whole new set of tools when you're on the entire Windows platform? But the crazy thing is though, is it happens. It does. I all mean, the time. sometimes sometimes there'll just be like a regime change, mm-hmm. and the new manager will come in and he's like you know what 
I want to change this. I, I This is the platform that I like. I've used this elsewhere. And I don't care what we're doing here. We're changing everything to move to this platform. So it does happen. It does. And I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah. I mean. You know, because sometimes I think that the, that the reasoning isn't necessarily coming from the right place. Yeah. Yeah. I could see pointy hair boss, you know, a, a programmer comes in and says, hey, we need to do this in, um, you know, say Lisp or, you know, what's something cool or Cylon or Rust or something. And the pointy hair boss is thinking, you know what, there's a good chance you're quitting in the next year and a half and I'm going to have to find someone else to uh, take this on. And no. But I will say this, though, and he brings up a good, a very, very good point down here. And this kind of goes back to our junior versus senior level developer type thing. He says, to beginners and to some outsiders, learning a new language seems a daunting task. But after you have three under your belt, it's really just a question of becoming familiar with the available libraries. And let's be honest, that's pretty accurate, right? It it's, is. It, unless you go to different types of languages. I, so if you're doing a functional versus an, an OO or a scripting, then, then there are nuances there but otherwise jumping from c-sharp to java is not that difficult i mean the i i i questioned where the three came from yeah okay that was trivial even one because yeah if you know one extremely well inside and out then you know going from c-sharp to java it's nothing you're not going to struggle too much on that that no if anything it's the frameworks like what joe said like this should almost be titled choose choosing a language or a framework right like if you jump from i, I don't know spring into something else it, it's a totally different ball game he he did make the comment though um about learning a language is not uh, learning a programming language isn't too far from learning you know or any more difficult than learning uh, a you know, a natural language right. like a foreign language and and i remember being in school and i always question like hey if i'm in this programming class, why am I not getting foreign language credit? Because <laughs> I can speak this. Can you? Right. Right? Like, what's the difference? Right? There's another thing that he said here that I thought was pretty spot on is he said, one tends to think of a large system that has components in three or four languages as being a messy hodgepodge. But I argue that such a system is in many cases stronger than a one language system in several ways. And he goes on a list of bullet points. Uh, there is necessarily loose coupling. It yes. has to be, right? You don't have an option. Um, you can evolve to a new language or platform easily be, by rewriting each component individually. It is possible that some of these modules are actually up to date. So those are pretty interesting things. And that also goes back to using languages for what they're strong for. Right. Like some languages. Using the best tool for the job. Yes. I mean, some are very good at parallel um, programming, threading, and that kind of stuff, right? Others are better for, I don't know, scripting out cron jobs or whatever the case may be. Like, there, there's I mean, so Perl got its name just for string manipulation, right? So, so or that you know where it's made its name. There's nothing wrong with using the right tool for the job, and and one of the things that is very important about this is you can also keep your programmers happy if you allow them to explore yes. these things, right? And Keeping morale high among programmers, and I think we talked about this in the previous podcast, is a big deal, right? Like, happy people produce better work. That's all there is to it. There was one point, though, in this section that I really didn't agree with, and this kind of goes back to the the previous section. But he says that, you know, when you're trying to choose a language, if it can be embedded, you should always consider it. 
And, you know, going back to the point that you just made, like, why? If it's not, you know, pick the best tool for the job. Yeah. And that best tool for the job might not necessarily be, uh, you know, something that could be embedded. Right. And and really, how often do you need to embed something? And And if we're thinking about, you know, if we're putting our, like, OWASP security hats on, <laughs> do you want it to be embeddable? Right. 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 You know, think about that. Look at Java applets now. <laughs> All right, let's move on. The uh, compromising wisely here. So, how to fight schedule pressure? Yes, and so I actually had my own little list of things here, um, but I first wanted to mention that the one, uh, the one thing, my the thing I got out of this the most, I guess, uh, the section. So, what will you give up to get the thing that you want? Which is, I feel like, the best response you can give to someone whenever you know scope creeps up, uh, scope creep comes up. Like, all right, um, what am I deprioritizing in order to get this done? Yeah. I mean, the the part that I thought was so key and a lot of people don't realize is when when business owners or managers or whatever are trying to put this pressure on you, they believe that asking for it sooner will make us work harder to get it there sooner. And this is probably true. But the effect is very small and the damage is very great. You create burnout when you do this, right? Right. Like when you apply that pressure, somebody's going to work themselves to the bone. The quality of work might even go down because they can't focus as well. And after they're done with that and then you hit them with the next one and they try to apply schedule pressure again, motivation starts dropping off a cliff. Yeah. Well, I was going to actually address that because he, he mentions you know, there's, there's time to market pressure. Which is good pressure, right? Yep. That, that's the pressure to deliver something quickly, you know, because there's uh, a financial like realization there, right? But there's the schedule pressure to deliver something, and that's bad because that's just you know arbitrarily you've decided, hey, uh, we need to get this done in the next three weeks. There was uh, there was another statement he put in here that I actually really liked. You can't pack more into a span of time any more than you can pack more water into a container over and above the container's volume, right? You can't do more than time will allow you to. In a sense, a programmer should never say no, but rather say, what will you give up to get that thing you want? Which is exactly what Joe said. There's, what is it? There's time, resources, and um, there's cost. Cost, yeah, so money. There's that three-pronged pyramid and as you drag one point out, right, the other two become either you know longer. Like as you stretch these things, one gets really short, and the other two get really long. So which two are you willing to give on, right? You know, and he call he calls labor an almost <clears throat> incompressible fluid. Yep. So, so you can't you can't you can't squeeze any more out of that because at some point you know your developers are just going to lose, uh, you know the morale. Like you said, the morale is going to go down. They're going to get tired. As they get tired, they're going to make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. And that cost may not necessarily be financial. There's also, you know, mental mental and physical costs to working a lot of hours. Yeah, I mean, if you burn out your team, then your team isn't going to want to hang around, right? Yep. And they even say asking somebody to do something that that basically is impossible is demoralizing. It's it's just like if you're standing at the base of that hill and you look up and there's no end in sight, like you don't even want to start climbing it, right? 
Like the, oh, I'm not going to make it, and someone's going to be yelling at me the whole time. That, that, that's <laughs> kind of the way I feel every time I'm at the bottom of the hill on a bike, and I'm like, oh, my God, i got to climb that. That's what I'll get That's on impossible. <laughs> Nobody can ride that. Uh, and then someone goes past me, and I'm like, dang it. <laughs> All right, fine. Let's go. All right. So. All right. Let's move on to how to understand the user. Love it. Do you really? I really did like this section. Do, do, yep. <laughs> uh, there's been so many times when I thought I understood what needed to happen. And, or, you know, I, I talked with the uh, the person, you know, paying the bill for the project and they thought they knew what needed to happen. And you get to actually meet or, and see how people who really use your software interact with it. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like, I can make this so much easier with just a few little tweaks that your life could be so much better. All right. Yeah. I mean, you, he, he makes a point here saying that like it's your duty to understand the user and to help your boss understand the user. And the more time you spend with users, the better you will be able to understand you know, what it will be to really be successful for them. Absolutely. If you watch them work, like it, I've, I've found it immensely useful to where if you are doing something for a particular department or set of users, just go sit down and watch over their shoulder. And see what they're trying to, like, the biggest problem, and, and he even touches on it here, is he's like, they usually think of small improvements that they can make, right? Because they're they're used to doing a job a certain way, and that's what they think, like. It's it's your job as an advanced developer to know the end game, right? You're trying to get from point A to point Z. They think about all their little steps that they do, and so they kind of miss out on the big picture. And it's it's basically your job to say, Oh, I see what you're trying to do, and I know a way to make this immensely better as opposed to creating all these little micro enhancements, right? Right. Also, um, a side effect is it, as you get to know the user better, they get to know you better. And so um, they may be more sympathetic or they may you know, listen to the things that you tell them a little bit more intently that, rather than distrusting. Or, it's just basically building a good relationship. You know, if you say... I can do that, but I don't think you're going to like it. And you just have to trust me. Then, you know, they might be more prone to do that if you've you know built that relationship up and there's trust there. Yeah. I mean, he, he makes the point of just saying, you know, just to hang out with them, you know, just Absolutely. getting to know them better. Go to lunch. It doesn't have to necessarily be like what, what you were describing, Alan, about, you know, watching them, but you know, just as long as you get to know them, because then kind of to Joe's point, you know, they'll be more willing to share as yeah. well. Absolutely. Oh, th- before we move on to the next section, I want to bring up a topic that our, our friend John, we, we had a discussion at lunch one day and in the, I don't know if it was in the previous one in our, in our intermediate or if it was in the beginning, we talked about scope creep and he made a very good point. And it's funny because as developers, it can be really frustrating for scope creep, right? But he made a great point. Scope creep is the business owner or the end user's way of trying to integrate or uh, iterate on the problem, right? Like we talk about as software developers, like you can't just try and start off with this huge idea. You have to have this MVP or you have to iterate towards something, right? That is the business owner's way of doing that. And that's why scope creep happens. So it was a very important point to bring up that, you know, there's two sides to any kind of software development, right? There's the user who needs something, and then there's the developer who's trying to create something. And so scope creep can be frustrating, but you just need to figure out a way to implement it. And that's where like Agile and those type of things have come into play, right? Because you have these shorter sprints to where, 
hey, a user says I do need that. Okay, well, let's try and work it into this sprint or get it into the next sprint. And so that's kind of the valuable part of that. But I did want to bring it up because I thought it was a great point that he made in that if you cut out scope, scope creep, you've kind of cut the legs off the user who's actually looking to get this delivered product. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that explanation a lot. But the frustration of it is, is that while, you know, you might be all on board for doing that, but then the reality is like, well, we're trying to get this feature out today. Can we push that feature out tomorrow? Right. Because if I got to try to fit that into today's schedule, like I'm not going to be able to get today's feature out either. So I'm going to fail on both. So can I have like micro successes and and get one? And that's where it gets to be frustrating. And totally. And that's a good point. And that's where like the old waterfall approach was really bad, right? Because you'd spend a year specking out this program and then you lock that document, right? And then it's like, okay, you're going to develop it to this. Well, business needs change over time. And so that becomes a problem. And that's why I think something like Agile is a lot better. Maybe it's not perfect. So but if you had a time machine, okay, <laughs> yep. you're Marty McFly. Yes, I am. You, you're, you jump in your DeLorean, and you hit 88 miles per hour. Yes. 20.21.1 gigawatts. And someone's trying to tell you about waterfall. <laughs> 20, let's, say, let's say it was 20 years ago. Man. You could be you could be the guy that invents agile. You could you could be that guy. I don't know if I want to be that guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, and this is why we still have waterfall in our history. It thanks, is. thanks, man. I mean, what are your this thoughts? This is why on we that? can't have nice things like right? time travel. What are your thoughts? Nothing here? ever goes away, right? Like <laughs> waterfall is never going away. Agile is never going away. Whatever comes next is never going away. Like it's it's just piling on, man. It's a big old mess of spaghetti. It'll be, and that's why uh, programmers get paid. It'll well. be an agile waterfall. <laughs> All right. Agile fall. Agile fall. Agile fail. (laughs) Uh, We've just created the next one. All right. Let's move on. Yep. To how to get a promotion. Uh, Yes, please. Join our Slack. Uh, this this topic actually comes up quite a bit, and it it kind of ties back to the whole junior senior developer. When is the time? Um, You know, do you need to change jobs to get a promotion? Do you need to? you know, be doing the job before you get the promotion? Do you just need to talk to your boss? Like, does there need to be a, a formal, you know, process with well-defined, um, you know, rules for getting that role? Eh, depends on where you're at. Yeah. I mean, we, and I think we kind of hit on this recently too. I don't remember. I think it was the last episode, I believe. Was it? I think so. But yeah, we did recently. Yeah, because because I remember that the the conversation was something along the lines of like the fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, you, you start doing yep. the job of what you want to be. But there was another part. So yeah, we did talk about that, and I think that's a good piece of advice. But there was another piece of advice in here that's golden that I think way too many people ignore. Ask your boss mm-hmm. what you need to do. To get that promotion. Right. Like a lot of times in your mind, you think that you just need to be, you know, doing awesome software, right? And in some places, maybe that'll get you the next promotion. But maybe your boss is looking for you to be a leader and to start organizing things or whatever. It's hard to know. Ask your boss. He can tell you what's in his mind. Now, the uncomfortable truth may be that, hey, I don't think you're ready for it. Yeah, you might not like what you hear. You may not. You it may be, hey dude, I don't like your work ethic. You know, you're not you're not pulling your weight, you're not doing this, whatever. But you'll never know unless you ask. 
Yeah. Yeah. Although um, another kind of point, there there was a, a podcast or a book or something I shouldn't even mention because I don't remember what it is. So anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> nice, nice, nice job. Ultimately, your boss just wants to look better, right? You know, everyone's accountable to you know somebody. Um, so if it's ultimately a lot of times a promotion isn't necessarily about you so much as it is what you can you know provide to your organization. So if you can figure out how to you know ask your boss or talk to your boss or whoever about what they need fulfilled, then that's a great way you know as, as I'll say of of getting that promotion or getting where you want. Well, also kind of in the vein of making people happy, though, if if they can't. If there's no visibility into what you're doing, right, then then it's easy for them to not appreciate your efforts, right? And so he makes a point that, you know, if you work remote, then sometimes that can be, you know, that can be more difficult to accomplish, to make what you're doing more visible to your boss and to your peers, right? It really can. And this, I think this also might be showing a little bit of the age of the document, because at least nowadays, there are a ton of tools to help with that, right? Like, you can have face-to-face meetings with people that are a country away. And I don't think it shows the age of the document at all. Because, you don't think so? No, because you could still be working remote, and if you're not... It's still the onus is on you yes. to call it out, to call out your successes. Okay, yeah. Good so point. if all you do is just, uh, you know, submit... commit. Um, pull requests and, and you submit 15 a day, but you never make a point of like, Hey, here's this new feature I added. How's anyone to know? Yeah. You gotta right? be a good salesman. Like I guess one of the big things that a lot of people don't understand about a promotion is you have to sell yourself, right? You have to be a good salesman for yourself. And that might mean creating a presentation to show what you did or setting up a meeting to where you can say, hey, look at this this feature that we've got that's going to help X, Y, and Z out, right? It, there's nothing wrong with doing stuff like that, and it, it will help you out tremendously throughout your career. Yep, and uh, I also like that they say to get a pay raise, negotiate armed with information, which is basically what you're talking about. But it'd be nice if you can go into that quarterly review or whatever and say, you know what? I worked on the three biggest, bestest features that we released this year, and I did a super job. So hook me up. Hey, and and if you can put some metrics to it, like, well, yo, what I did just increased our profitability by 10%. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge thing, right? And that was a point that we addressed. I think it was in the last episode as well that, you know, because I made the point of pointing out, uh, I made the point of pointing, <laughs> <laughs> and I pointed very well. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> better than I am right now. <laughs> of uh, you know, I used the e-commerce as an example that where like that's that's an easier situation to where you know, you can e- you could say, hey, I implemented this feature, and that feature uh, after implementing that feature, we saw X amount of dollars, yep. right? And that's something that, like, when you can quantify that in a number like that, then everyone can understand it. Yeah, and it doesn't always have to be dollars. Like, it could be, I took this processing time down from eight hours to five minutes. That was an increase of, you know, a gazillion percent or something. Average session time. Yeah, I mean. Bounce rates. I mean, there's a ton of different ways that you could measure that. It doesn't have to be dollars. Yeah, and, and they, all these metrics... I think the key is, and we've discussed this on Slack as well, ironically enough, is be able to quantify things. Don't say, well, how much money did you make? A lot. Yeah. A, a lot to Bill Gates is how much. Right. A lot to you is how much, right? A lot is so generic and 
I, non-informative. I guess from my own experience, though, th- the reason why I say that use the dollars as an example, though, is that there have been situations where you know maybe it was something like, "Hey, uh, we implemented this feature feature and our average session time increased, or you know, uh, bounce rates went down, or whatever." And you know, the the response is okay, but so what? But if you can say, well, X amount of more dollars, like we, we brought in, a, you know, I don't know, let's say it was $100,000 more this month because of this feature. Right. Then it's hard for them to argue and say it doesn't matter because you can say, well, that's a six-figure number bigger than what it was last month, right. so it matters. And, right? and if you equate that out over a year, that's $1.2 million, right? So, uh, And by the way, uh, for those of you who have no idea what he meant when he said bounce rate, that's that's generally a website type term. If you come to the site and you leave from that first page, that's a bounce. That's somebody that did not go any further than the first page they landed on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know what to say that. The pre- How about I just automated accounting and you were able to lay off 20 people because of me. High five. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody hates Joe now. Yeah, your car is keyed <laughs> and your tires are flat, so you're walking home. You know, you, you jest about that, but I'm not kidding you. I have a buddy who got fired because he literally automated a job that like four or five people were doing in the department. He automated that job, had it done, like literally their entire job done in seconds that would take them days to do. And he got fired. Why? Because, well, okay, never because mind. that's crazy. Because he worked for one of the people that he just kind of replaced with that thing uh, that he wrote, right? Nice. And so that's kind of an important thing to know. Like you kind of need to know your target audience as well. But it, I mean, I've definitely been in situations uh, where. Um, you know, especially as a consultant and you arrive and you're, you're tasked with doing something right. And you start going around to some of the end users and talking to them and asking questions, kind of like, you know, what we were talking about in the previous uh, section about getting to know the user. Right. And there's definitely this vibe from them about like, Oh crap, you're about to automate my job. Aren't you? But you know what? Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, just the point being is that there's that vibe there. And sometimes it's difficult trying to just overcome that, yes. like you know, and kind of reassure them without without actually coming out and saying like, "Hey, I'm not here to get rid of your job." Right, that's, that's not what I do. That's what I was going to say. That's part of being this advanced programmer is it's almost your job to make them understand that. Look, I'm not trying to replace you. I'm trying to enable you to be able to do more things better. Right? I mean, it doesn't help that when I start the question with, you know, something along the lines of. So, uh, what exactly would you say you do here, Bob? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm the bean counter, <laughs> right? I'm a right. people person. Uh, so, what I'm hearing here is I should be sandbagging. So, if I don't have good <laughs> metrics now, then I should put out a feature, throw some sleeps in there, and then a couple months later, I take those sleeps out and I can say, hey, I improved performance 30%. By you know, the way, that is the same as reporting off Jira statistics. <laughs> if you get it if you get it into a pull request and no one notices, then maybe. But I have a feeling that when you go to remove it, someone's going to notice. So you might want to be a little bit more clever about it than just doing a sleep. Uh, that's awesome. 
So you got to get your buddies in on it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever the pull request approver is. I'm, I'm pretty sure that minification is going to be involved. And that way you could just cram a bunch of stuff into the code. Uh, and then a month later, delete it all and be like, hey, look, I removed 20% of the page weight. That's awesome. Yep. All right. This episode is sponsored by Dev Bootcamp. Thinking about becoming a software developer? Check out Dev Bootcamp, the original short-term immersive software development program that transforms those new to coding into job-ready, full-stack web developers. Learn front and back-end web development, teamwork, and leadership skills in a rigorous and inclusive environment. Dev Bootcamp has several locations around the country and is accepting applications now. Visit devbootcamp.com slash codingblocks to learn more. <laughs> All right. So you, I, we've been having some fun with the surveys, and I want to have some more today. So you guys haven't cheated, have you? You haven't looked at the results yet, right? Man, how do you think I got through college? Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so going back to that education conversation. Uh, Joe, did you? Why do you always ask this question? Do you want me to lie to you? <laughs> oh, my God. You guys. Uh, don't you know the rules like by now? I, I didn't look. I didn't either. You liars. Uh, All right. Well, last uh, last survey was you know Girl Power, the princess rap battle. And I can never pronounce her name. Glad- Galadriel. Gl- what? Galadriel. Okay. Well, her versus Leia. Who wants to take... Mrs. G versus Leia. Mm-hmm. Oh, I prefer Leia, but I th- I Miss G, she dropped the Alderaan bomb. Okay. You know, what what can Leia say to that? Right, right. Alan, who who do you think who do you think was the winner? Uh Leia. Leia? Yep. Well, only one of you is right, and it's Alan. Woohoo! By a long shot. She has a blaster, man. Right. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. How, how can you beat lasers? That's what I'm saying, especially lasers Lasers that you can see. (laughs) Yeah, it 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 was it was like more than three quarters of the votes were for Leia. Wow. Yeah, definitely the popular choice was Leia. Nobody wants some fantasy chick beating beating Leia. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I'm definitely more of when it comes to sci-fi. I definitely like the sci part better than the fi part. Yep. Although I'm not really even sure who Galadriel is, even though I've read all of those books. <laughs> uh, she was the person in the rap battle with Leia, right? Okay, maybe one of the maybe she was an elf. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I hated that whole series. Um, I know that probably just upset a lot of people, but there, I it's out there. I thought it was horrible. All right, so we won't make that the next survey though. But what the next survey is is on one of my favorite topics, Git. And we had this conversation in the Slack channel. Again, if you want to join, hit us up with an email, uh, specifically with the email that you want us to send the invite to, either at comments at codingblocks.net or uh, hit us up on the DM on Twitter. And um, the conversation was whether or not to squash your commits, right? So to squash or not to squash? That that is the question. And you're talking about racquetball? Uh, no, we're talking about Git. I I already said that part. You weren't listening. All right. Sorry, I just I cracked myself up. Man, is this microphone, James? Can you hear me? 
Is this? Okay. <laughs> All right. So your choices are. Wait, wait. First, first. Oh, okay. Do do. Are you going to explain what that is? Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, you're right. You're right. Squash you're right, or not right, squash? Right. What? Fine, fine, fine. Okay, so so a little backstory here. If let's say you are in, let's speak specifically to Git. You're you have, uh, let's say, ten commits that it took you to implement some feature, right? And now it comes time to put a pull request together and submit that pull request. Now you could. Uh, using Git, squash all of those 10 commits into one nice commit, and that way the people reviewing it only see the, the one commit, and when they look through their Git log, after it after that feature gets later merged into uh, into the you know, master or whatever the main trunk is called, then um, you know they only see that feature as one commit in the Git log, right? So it makes it easy from that point of view. Or you could not squash those commits and just leave the 10 commits as they are, put your pull request together. Now there's 10 commits. And then when it gets merged into whatever the main trunk is, now there's 10 commits for the implementation of that feature, right? So your questions for the survey are, I your options for the survey are, I squash because I care. Or... Everyone can learn from my path, so I don't squash. Or, wait, what? Okay, but I do want to clarify something here. There's actually a slight little nuance. All right. So, the squash does take all your commits, your 10 commits, puts it into one, right? So, you just literally see, here's where I started, and here's where I ended up. That's it. You see no no intermediate stuff. However, the not squash does not imply that your stuff will be linear. Like you're just going to see it played out in order to do that. You would have to rebase. Yeah. I'm, this is not a rebase right. conversation, but I just wanted to point out that if you're working on a team with a bunch of different people and you, you don't do anything except put in a pull request, then it's going to be extremely difficult to actually see your path at all because it's going to be so intertwined and interlaced with other commits. Right. There, there have been, there have been times where people I've, I've heard people or, or read where people have confused the topics and will confuse or think that they, that squashing and rebasing go hand in hand. Yeah. And they don't all, if you rebase, what that is doing is it undoes your 10 commits it merges in whatever branch you're merging in, and then it replays your 10 commits on top of it, and those 10 commits get new commit IDs as part of that process, right? And so when you look back in the history, you'll now see those 10 commits in order. So, for instance, if you worked on your branch for... I guess you're trying to talk me into not no, squashing. No, no, I'm not trying to talk you into not squashing. I'm just saying that I think that it should be squash or don't squash with rebase so that because there's really no value to not squashing if you're not going to line your commits up because you can't follow it like it's straight up wait it, there's not value in squashing no if you're not going to there's not value in not squashing in this in this survey if you're not going to rebase because what i'm saying is oh, if you oh. rebase i say that there's not i i say okay so here's my opinion okay. and I, I don't i'm not trying to sway the the jury but uh but he's going to but I'm going to <laughs> and so what I say is that you know if you you should if you can 
unless you just can't for some reason, then I say that you should. And here's my reason is that I don't care if you do rebase it or not. Clearly, clearly rebasing your 10 commits in on top would be better than not. But I don't care what your thought process was to implement that feature. What I care about is the feature. The end state of the feature is what matters. Your journey to it isn't important. And if that doesn't sway your opinion, Git bisect should. Because now, let's picture three months have gone by and I need to uh, do a Git bisect because I'm, I'm trying to figure out some problem, or maybe not three months, but you know, however, some duration of time has gone by. And now I land at one of your partial commits that may be incomplete. Hopefully it, it compiles and works. It, it's not going to help me to bisect the problem that I was originally trying to because now I've landed on so, a partial feature. So that doesn't help me. Hey, where's that uh, Where's that bisect button in the GitHub app? I'm not seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> what Joe says. No, but, but for real, um, sometimes the path is important. Have you ever done something and say you do it version one, and as you're about to check in the ticket, boss says, no, 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 do it this way. And so you do version two. Now if you squash those changes, and then two days later, your boss says, whoa, whoa, whoa sorry, version one. That's very and if legit. You squash those commits, no, no, that's lost. that is a very different story no. that he's describing. Yes, because he's describing iteration. Yeah, and and we're not talking about iteration. Yeah. We're talking about, we're talking about like you're developing a feature, right? And and you it, that feature took you ten commits when to develop that feature, and now you put the pull request together. Mm. If you're at the point of already putting the pull request together, then the feature is done, nah. right? Yo, man, the, I, I work on some things that change during the day. No, I, I actually <laughs> agree with Joe on this because I've totally been there to where you're not ready to put the pull request together, but it has changed. And so it, so what you're saying is if you get to a point to where you can put a pull request together and that didn't happen, we'll say, then you squash it. Like, I'm on board with that. But what he's saying is you're working on something, you show it to your boss, and he's like, uh, I want you to go in this direction. And so you keep developing now. If you squash that when you now put the pull request in after your boss has changed his mind three times, you lose all yeah, that history. You're not putting the pull request together until he okayed it. That's what I'm saying. So now you're going to lose all that history no, no, no. because no, no, yeah, no, no. you're yeah, missing yeah. the point. You're missing the point. None of, and during none of this time have you have you put the pull request together. You're saying you developed a feature, you went to get sign off from your boss, he didn't like it. He wanted some change. So you make his change, right? Now you should be nope. getting sign off from him again. You're before committing. you put the yeah, you're committing. But before you put the pull request in, you get sign off from him. Hey, do you like this? He doesn't like it. Now you can still revert back to your commit. No, no, you put the pull request in. He wants oh, it oh, tomorrow. So like, <laughs> no, tomorrow. Yeah, he pull says, request is in the yeah, middle. Yeah, yeah. No, the tomorrow. He's like, no, wait. You know what? That's not what we want to go back. You can't. Uh, no, you can't. Yeah. Right, you do lose history. I mean, I change stuff all the time. Like I'll do something one way, and then an hour later, I do it another way, and then I go back because uh, I'm crazy and don't think ahead sometimes. And so it is nice to have that history. But my solution to that is to squash my pull request and then keep the local branch so that I have those changes unsquashed, so I, I can do that. Keeping the local branch can help this. It, it, so so to the survey though, I mean, I, I think we should do well, the survey. That depends. But I, he's describing a tool though. Hold on, let's be careful there because the way the the way that Joe's describing that is, is he's depending on the the tool that he's using for the pull request 
right? Specifically, I know he's referring to Visual Studio uh, uh, oh, Team Services. He's relying right. on them yeah. to do the squashing because Good if you're point. doing your squashing local. by command line locally, it kills then it. it local branch doesn't matter. You've already done right. it unless you're going to like branch it into a new directory or clone it into a new directory. Oh, that's a good point. You know, you could branch the branch, but yeah, you could branch the crazy. branch, or or but then it's just a mess, right? Trying to keep up. Yeah, with don't everything. branch your branch and do so. It. Right. So, I mean, I just wanted to lay all that out there, though, to make sure because a lot of people don't even know what this rebasing versus squashing and all that stuff is, and so I wanted people to actually understand what you get and what you lose in both of those cases, and and honestly, to to me. Not to sway, I'm on the fence. Like, it depends on what I'm working on. Like, if I've been working on something for three months and I've had to make a bunch of changes along the way and I haven't put in a pull request yet because this is a feature branch, I'm not squashing that commit. I'm going to keep the entire history all the way up. Yeah. Now, if it's something that's like a week long, I'm going to be like, squash it. You know, whatever. It, it was It was something that was relatively quick to do. Squash it. I don't care. But I'm not losing three months worth of work with fifty thousand changes in between, just just because I want one clean commit. Man, Git can keep those diffs and they can be happy with it. And if you want to bisect it, and you don't know how to go past my broken commit. <laughs> you need a better tool. No, no but that's no. That's that, that's actually not a fair statement. That's not a fair statement because if you're bisecting and and at the point where you're bisecting at that commit. If if it's a broken build, for example, okay, then what are you supposed to do, right? Like you can't you can't evaluate whether or not what you were trying to fix the the, the problem that you were trying to re, to to inspect and, and and dissect. You can't evaluate whether or not you know that that commit is what caused the problem is right. is before or after the problem was there. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Uh, again, like I said, I I'm actually on the fence. I, I this is one of those situations where I say there's no one size fits all type thing. Like it really boils down to what kind of development you've been doing, how quickly it's been done and that kind of thing. Like to me, like I'm not going to squash every time and I'm not going to rebase every time and I'm not going to uh, you know, just simply do the same thing over and over. It really depends on what my workflow was leading well, up to fairness, that. Well, I wasn't taking like an absolutist point of view that you have to do it every time. I said if I you think can. You were. <laughs> but I'm. I guess my point though is that more often you can. More often, especially if it's a quick feature, right? Like if it's something you knock out in a day or two, more than likely there's no reason to All keep right, it. So in your next pull request, I'm going to see it squashed. <laughs> I'm going to use that button online to do it. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I squash if there's a convenient checkbox for it. <laughs> wow. Roger that. Uh, all right. So well, wait, did we ever finish the search? Well, yeah, you did. You did. You got them all out there. Yeah, yeah. The three options, uh, I squash because I care or... Alan's approach, everyone can learn from my path. <laughs> and then Joe's approach is, wait, what? Uh, yeah, it's like next time someone says, you know what, man, I'm trying to bisect this stuff and it's a big mess because of all your commits, you just need to say, you know what? You need to learn from my path. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to study up. Give it a good look. Uh, there, there's value in my mistakes. You can learn from them. Uh, that's a, like, I, I can't teach you principles, man. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling oh. we're gonna hear about this one. <laughs> oh man, I am. I'm gonna go ahead and move us along to serving your team and how to develop talent. So I gotta say right here, like 
you know, he says what does not destroy me makes me stronger. And all I could think of was Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> so for the rest of the section, I, I got this song like playing in my head. Oh man. Well, yeah, I've never been a fan of that uh, analogy or saying because I could think of a lot of things that would be so much worse <laughs> that it wouldn't actually destroy me. I mean, stretch them not by giving them more work, but by giving them a new school skill or better yet, a role to play on the team. I like that. I, I, I actually really do like that. Like any time that I've tried to help bring uh, like juniors up and and try and get them to do better or, or junior level developers or people that are trying to learn, whatever the case may be, like <laughs> I just... I just saw like Grandpa Allen here. <laughs> Every time I'm trying to bring the juniors up, yeah, that's right. So, like, I my approach was always okay. You're trying to accomplish whatever this task is. Go do it. I, I really don't even want to give you any advice. I want you to go do it, so that I can see that you tried, you struggled through it. You're going to learn a lot just by now doing that. That's a that. tough thing to a tough assignment to give to like someone who's fresh out of school. This is their first gig. I'm yeah. not saying it's a hard thing. It might be just a task. Are we going like, back to the impossible thing. No, this is more like <laughs> okay. I need you to change a label, right? Something like that. It could be just a very small task, but I want you to go figure out how to do it. And then when they come back, if they did a good job, I'm going to be like, hey, that's excellent. If it could be improved upon, I'm going to be like, hey, this really isn't that important of a thing right now to where we have to have it today. I want you to see if you can improve upon that. And let's do it by doing X, Y, and Z, right? But I can't help but kind of smile and laugh because, like, you mentioned label specifically. And I seem to recall a certain someone who worked in a particular framework where it took, I don't know, how many days was it? Dude, Joe laughed at me. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I remember that framework very well. Oh, man, no, it, yeah. this wasn't fair. This so sometimes, if it's a crappy framework that you're working in, changing a label is a harder task than you're making it out to be. Man, th this yep. is no joke. This is when I first met Joe, and he was kind of the guy that I had to go to to talk about the things that I'm working on, right? And and my very first task was literally changing a label on a page, and I'm like. Are you kidding me? Like this is this is ridiculous. Why why are they paying me for this, right? Man, I'm not kidding. 2 days later in a two-page <laughs> wiki that I wrote, I had changed the label on the page. And I and I went to Joe, man. I was like defeated. I was like, dude, look. I apologize. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but like, I thought this was going to take me five minutes, man. He's like, nah, nah. He's like, totally don't worry about it. And I'm like, what are you? It's like, that's why you got the ticket, man. I knew it would be hell, total hell. <laughs> I was, and I literally, I felt like I had just been destroyed, right? Like, I, I had been shot by some meteors. It, it was insane. Like I said, crappy framework. It could be a, oh, changing was, a label. It could be a big problem. If you hear the letter CMS, beware. <laughs> Yeah, there was a there was a couple statements in here. One that I strongly agree with, and one that I I wasn't so on board with. You know, he says that uh, if there's if there's never any failure, there can be no sense of adventure. And I'm like, wait, yeah. what? No, <laughs> no, I can definitely have a sense of adventure and sense of accomplishment just by being done early. I don't I don't need to fail. Yeah, I'll get my adventure in my own time. Thank you. <laughs> but but I did like the statement that I strongly agree with, which was saying that you know if there's not occasional failures, you're not taking enough risks. Totally agree with that. Totally. Yeah. You need to get outside really your comfort. Liked, uh, Go ahead. 
Uh, he also kind of pushed it. He didn't quite phrase it like this, but basically credit out um, blame in, and I put parentheses private, and uh, the credit out blame in is like a seven habits of effective people uh, thing. But uh, I did like the fact that he, he was kind of saying the same thing, except that, you know, praise people, you know, give them the high fives in public. And if you got to talk to them about something, do it in quiet, you know, like do it alone. And, uh, you know, don't embarrass anybody. Don't put their, you know, egos on the line. Don't start an argument. So I thought that was kind of cool. Those are all super important. Now, again, keep in mind, this is how to develop talent, right? And, and he, says, he says you can't give up on someone who's intentionally not carrying their share of the load, yep. right? Because of low morale or or dissatisfaction, right? You can't just let them be slack. And you must try and motivate them. Yeah. And, and you know what? <sighs> There's truth to that, and that is very, very difficult to do. Because you, as the person that is trying to motivate them, sometimes it's like everybody else is pulling their weight. Why aren't you? Right? Like yeah, you kind of hate them a little you bit. You do. Right? Like you have a little bit of resentment. It's hard not to. I think you already go go into the situation kind of judgmental though. Like you kind of have a chip it, on your it's shoulder. Gonna right? be, well, it's gonna be well, what's this person's track record though? Right. Has this person has have has this person brought major, you know, wins for me in the past? Or have they not? Because if they haven't, then I might be less inclined. Like if they've if they've brought consistent failures, right? Then I might be less inclined, and which is not the response that he's going after here. Well, he's this saying, is why I'm probably not the advanced programmer. But hold on, this is why <laughs> he's not saying people that have been terrible. He's saying people that are intentionally slacking, right? And there's a difference, right? Like if you have somebody that's unfortunately the most motivated person in the world, but they just can't seem to put together anything that works like a label <laughs> that's you know <laughs> as, as it happens um no it worked it just took me a long time right but but there's a difference right maybe you just need to find out hey man what do you what is it that you want to do like what's going to get you excited you know and so maybe that's the approach you have to take maybe that person's kind of been back burner for a long time like joe's talked about in the past like he likes to work on greenfield stuff a lot of times as an employee you get stuck with all the old garbage right because you have the business knowledge behind it so maybe that person seeing that everybody else is getting to work on this cool stuff and he's just kind of hanging out i have a different perspective on life now after uh 2016 election cycle i just keep thinking you know what what would trump do <laughs> about a demotivated employee <laughs> you're fired <laughs> <laughs> all right next topic <laughs> uh, uh. yeah i mean he does say like when your patience is exhausted and you fire them but that's why I, I guess to my point though is just we're all human right you're going to take your past experiences with you and so if this person has brought successful wins to you then you're going to be more likely to give them that extra time right and and work within that extra bit but if it's someone who hasn't brought you wins you know regardless of why they're slacking you're gonna have less tolerance for it period and that's just human nature that that's just how we are it is and it's hard not to be that way well the next one we've got is how to choose what to work on don't you get to do that every day you're just like yo this is what i'm doing today 
Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I don't have a whole lot of choice here. I basically, you know, like we're all using ticket managers, right? And they all have priorities. And, and the only really question for me, uh, you know, when I'm trying to pick my next task is if two things are the same priority, do I go with the one that I think is going to be easier to do or the one that is going to be more mercury, um, more murky and hard to figure out? Yeah, because the business owners get to decide what we work on. They do, but I would say that having an open line to your manager or whoever that may be and voicing the kind of things that you enjoy to do can go a long way, right? Like maybe they see that you're busting your tail and they say, hey, I know that, you know, hey, what's going to make you happy? If he doesn't reach out to you, it's your job to get in his ear and be like, and, and I don't mean complain and whine and moan. I mean, hey. You know, uh, I've been working on a lot of this stuff, and and I and I love contributing to the team. But hey, man, could could I work on something along this line, right? Like, I want to get more involved in databases, or I want to get more involved in this. Can I can I do that? So there's that approach, but mm-hmm. the approach that I was thinking of that I think I've actually had more success with is just uh, going back to that one about getting to know the users, right? Yeah. You get that relationship with the with the business owner, and you start you know, working out some kind of an idea with them, there's a strong chance that, you know, you're going to be involved in it. And, and, you know, you're the whole reason, part of the reason why you're working that idea out with them in the first place is from an interest point of view. Yep. Right. So, you know, that, that can help you be the guy because you're already the go-to guy from like, from the, the business owner's perspective. Right. Well, I was trying to not say design perspective, but, but you know the guy who was originally um, trying to sort out the details of it, right? Then you know, some, a lot of times, more often than not, by default, you get to be the guy to do it. So sometimes it's making your own destiny is is really what it comes down to. And you could even end up leading that project, right? <laughs> even if you weren't the lead, if you've got that connection, you could. Yeah. Uh, he also said to do what you're best at, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but also to stretch. So uh, I know that, um, you know, sometimes I feel like I should do the things I know how to do. But also sometimes it's nice to do something I'm not good at just because, you know, I need to get better at it. And I want those things to be fluent. Well, yeah. I mean, I actually thought that that was kind of an interesting point, too, because I've always thought of it from the opposite point of view, which is you should practice the things that you're weaker at to get better at them. And and I mean, I, I've yeah, kind of taken that approach. Returns, right? Huh? What? There's diminishing returns. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I know I've taken that approach with, with you know times where there, like you mentioned, uh, you know here here's a few tickets. Which one do I want to work on? And there have definitely been times where I'm like, well, you know, this is this is a an area that I don't touch often, and you know, if I if I work on this ticket, I can get better at it. Right. And and you know that that'll pay off in the long run for me. Yeah, assuming that you like the things that you're not as good at. That's a good point. I mean, it really is. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking more to like not necessarily um, like business rules or things like that, but more like technology stacks, right? right. Like, you know, if, if SaaS isn't your thing, right, but a SaaS ticket comes along and you're like, well, hey, this gives me an opportunity to uh, increase those skills, right? That That's, uh, you know, not going to be a bad thing for me, right? Right. So it might not be something I want to do day in, day out, but, you know, hey. Nice change of pace. Yeah. Yep. 
All right. Now for the next one, uh, how to get the most from your teammates. Uh, the obvious answer here is donuts. I was going to say. I keep control effing and it's not coming up. <laughs> I was actually going to say the same thing. You could, you show up yep. on Friday with two dozen donuts. All right. Then, so I have one question. Where's my donuts? <laughs> Apparently, the, you yep. both wanted to give me some donuts and I didn't get any. It's not Friday. I absolutely would bribe with donuts uh, <laughs> when when it was available to me. I absolutely good reviews. Um, I expect I mean, anything. I expect a <laughs> shipment of donuts. Uh, yep. Um, respect. Respect's a huge one, right? If everybody respects everybody else, then everybody. It, it's almost like the daddy complex. You don't want to let your friends down or your teammate down. If you if you've ever played a team sport. Like, you don't want to be that guy that lost the game because you weren't playing your position. It's the same type thing, right? Like, if you have a strong team and usually close team, people go out to lunch. We talked about this before. People that, that hang out, have the same type morals and beliefs and all that, then then that can go a long way to having that effect. And donuts. And donuts. <laughs> and donuts. <laughs> And we've we've mentioned this uh, this concept before, but it it came up again about the disagree and commit, right? Um, you know, one of the Amazon principles, and you know, I don't, did this guy start Amazon? I'm pretty sure he didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he made the point about you know if you don't, uh, sometimes you just need to let your team do things their own way, even if you don't agree, and you know you can disagree openly, but you know you need to accept the consensus of of the team. There was another thing that he said that I actually know a very good friend of mine who did this. He basically, he says, sometimes it occasionally means allowing your teammates to be wrong. So so you know that what they've decided to do is not going to work. But you let them do it anyways. Because you have to show that you have faith in their decisions and all that kind of stuff. And I actually know a guy who did this at a very high level with one of his high-level managers this guy wanted to work on a project and he was like, yeah, I don't think that's a great idea. But the guy, he really wanted to do it. Like he thought there was going to be a lot there. And he's like, all right, we'll go ahead and do it. And then after he did it, then turned out to do what he thought it would. But he was like, you know, I mean, you can't let somebody go their entire career and not be able to do some things, right? You sometimes have to let them go. It's almost like having kids to a certain degree. You can't box them all up, right? You got to let them explore and find out what's out there. If you hold everybody down, they're never going to get better at anything they do. Right. All right. How about how to divide problems? I like to divide by two. I don't know. Maybe you <laughs> like to divide by three. <laughs> I, I liked what he said about dividing early. Uh, a lot of times a project will get to the end. There's like one week left. It's severely behind schedule and suddenly it's you know time to split it up. And so there's a lot of communication. Things get confusing. So I definitely like the idea of kind of from the get-go working with someone or, or you know splitting up uh, amongst other people. Yeah, I mean, that, again, I guess it depends too because like I guess I got so um, – what would be the way to put this – you know, there was so much like project planning and waterfall type things mentioned in here that I guess I kind of like glossed over things when, when it came to like project planning again, I was like, Oh, not this again. Yeah. And it's, I think you tend to favor kind of like one person owning like a feature or a thing and that can kind of, you know, walk it all the way through to the end, which might involve splitting up, but not so much 50, 50 as it might be 90, 10, right? Wait, I, I am that guy. 
Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you've mentioned before, like the twelve factor app and stuff that you like the the oh, developer to kind of own no. a feature all the way through to the end, right? Well, I want you to take ownership of it. Yeah, like, but that, but you might be there could be two people or more people to, that are part of that. But yeah, definitely, if you wrote some code, you should take ownership of it and not say, well, you know, it it doesn't work because I didn't have a unit test and blame it on something else. Well, you know, what I'm saying, I guess, is like if one person is doing the front, one person is doing the back, you're working on the front, you're owning the front, there's something you see to make it better, but the, you know, the other person's kind of dragging their feet a little bit on that feature. Like, are you really, you know, are you just going to let it go? Are you going to dive into their code to make that fix? You know, what happens with maintenance? You know, are you really going to rely on someone else to, to, you know, potentially mess up your feature? Mm. I mean... If I'm if I'm working with somebody, if I, okay, if I follow your example correctly, right? Like, I'm working on say the front end, someone else is working on the server side. There's definitely been times where, you know, I've finished my part ahead of time and I've jumped in to try to help where I can. But that's also a situation too where it's kind of difficult because it's almost like, well, how many hands can you have in the cookie dough before there's too many in there and nobody is able to actually like make cookies, right? <laughs> Mm, cookies. Right. <laughs> cookies. Yeah, I know what you're saying. And so, yeah, that's why I kind of I have a hard time with the 50-50 split for smaller features. But if you kind of have one person who's like running the lead on that feature, then I, I think that makes sense a little bit. And so, you know, someone else can do part of it. But ultimately, I think one person's really got to kind of take ownership of it. You know, otherwise it gets to be a, oh, no, there's a bug. And then, you know, it, it becomes finger pointing time as each person tries to figure out, you know, what needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I would, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> Divide by two yep. and have cookies. This doesn't even mention pair programming. Well, does any, does, does anyone actually pair program or is that just like a thing that Ruby people talk about, but never I've do? heard that there are shops that do it. And some of the people that have done it actually like it quite a bit. No. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even here in the Atlanta area, there are shops that, that do it. It seems sort of crazy to me. I, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I've never, I, I don't know that I've ever done it for an extended period of time. There have definitely been times where I've sat beside you know someone and we've worked some yeah. problem out, but it was more like, that's a you know, task. One or two days, yeah, to, to, yeah. to complete something. And then, you know, you go about your day. Yeah, but no, like Monday through Friday, you know, oh, man. eight to five. Programmers have bad breath. There's no way I could do that all the yeah. time. Yeah, man. <laughs> I think, there's are, are a you generality. trying to tell me something here, man? <laughs> like, this is awkward. Look, man, if there's any programmer on the planet who does not have bad breath, Outlaw spends like $30 a day on gum. There's no, That's true. There's no way. <laughs> there's no way I have bad breath. I'm there's just no saying. Way. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> all right. Well, how to handle boring tasks? If somebody knows how, please tell me. Um, delegate. Uh, I like what oh. I actually really like the advice here, um, which is um, kind of funny um, because of what we just talked about. But basically, they say split it up. But I don't think that necessarily means split the task up fifty fifty, like I was saying. But when I think of a boring task, it's kind of like 
a repetitive thing that's kind of either hard to work on or it's boring but still needs to be babied or there's some reason why you can't automate it. And so it kind of sucks to give it to, to one person and have that one person always lugging that around. So if you could split that up, and you know, even if it's just one other person and they kind of take turns, it doesn't feel like they're off on their own, you know, carrying this burden. Well, you know, so there was this uh, this quote in here about, you know, it's not, it's sometimes it's not possible to avoid boring tasks that are critical to the success of the company or the project. And I immediately, like in my notes here, I wrote down, CSS, SAS, and less. <laughs> like those are those are things that you can't avoid in in your web application. But yet they're also, it, you know, if you are a designer, then you're probably taking huge offense to what I'm saying here. <laughs> so it you know, it's one of those things that like I'll do it, and and you know I'm, I it's going back to trying to practice the things that you're you know that you're not as strong at, right, to increase those skills, I'll definitely do it and, and gain something from it. But if I had my choice of picking something to do, you know, it's not my most favorite thing, right? Well, I think I, I agree with what Joe said a second ago, and he even puts it, I guess, in, in so many words. If all else fails, apologize to those who have to do the boring task. That actually goes a little ways. To helping, right? Like, yep. dude, I know this stinks, but, you know, we just got to get through it. And then, but under no circumstance, allow them to do it alone. And I think that's important, right? Like, don't just stick it on one dude or, or girl or whatever the case may be, lady, woman, guy. Don't stick one person with it because it, it really does feel like, dude, what... Why, why am I on traffic duty? <laughs> why am I yeah. the dude standing out in the middle of the road, you know... Yeah. Oh, here's a good example. Localization. Imagine your boss was like, uh, "Hey, we want to port this thing to uh, you know Russians." So uh, get to tokenizing. <laughs> um, Google Translate, right? <laughs> I, I would totally write an API really fast with that. Yeah, and then go to every string in the application and uh, swap it out for its appropriate variable. Man. Yeah. That, see, I'm already asleep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How to gather support for a project. This sounds like politics to me. Yeah, a prototype was mentioned, and I've seen a lot of times when like uh, someone would kind of go off on their own for a weekend and kind of build something and co- come back and say, "Look, I told you it was possible." But I'm not crazy about that because I've also seen you know the person come back and then they take the prototype and they try to just use it and it fails in production because it's not production ready, or you know it, it totally gets dismissed. Like, yeah, that's nice, but I don't wanna. So you just wasted your weekend. Um, there's also the possibility that you bring in the prototype and I don't even remember what I was going to say. I just, I'm not super big on this one. Although sometimes it does work out and I, I get it. I get how it could be helpful, but it just kind of sucks for the person who has to spend their own time I've, doing well, it. I've definitely been on, you know, there've definitely been times where it's like, Oh, Hey, great. I have this idea for the prototype, do it. And then it just falls flat. Right. And, it, and, yep. and even though you're like, but there's value here. Like, why would you not want to do this? And you know, it doesn't matter. Well, unfortunately, yep. what I said about the politicking, while somewhat a joke, is not. Like, if you really want to gather support for a project, you need to get some key players on your team, right? And Which is such a crappy way to have to do it. It is, but 
I mean, it's just the way it is. So if it provides value, then it provides value, period. But you need to prove that it provides value. And if you can get certain key people on your team, then they can help sell it for you. But I do but I would say so to the prototyping part of it, I think it's important. You know, actions speak louder than words. I'm not saying you go build something. Like uh, there's the infragistics prototyping tool to where you can like kind of create flows and that kind of stuff, right? After you have gotten, like maybe just there's even apps on an iPad where you can literally just do like little screen screen flows to where you know you click on here and it goes here, or whatever. You can do that pretty quick. Get key people on your team after you show them that stuff, and if you get enough buy-in, then at that point you start building a prototype because building prototypes can take plenty of time. And to Joe's point. A lot of times they're not even done well because it's literally just, hey, let's do whatever we can to at least get this thing on the screen and, you know, yeah. not worry about performance, not worry about abstraction, anything, right? How, how many times have you seen the, the prototype become the production instance? And it happens too much, right? Yep. So, but, oh, fine. Yeah, we'll just take that. But I do think that to a certain degree, and it's not so much politicking because politicking implies usually some negative connotations. But you do need to get key people on your team, right? Like if if you're trying to do, I don't know, if you're trying to add something to a page that's that's going to bring in clicks, then maybe you want to get a marketing person involved, right? And explain to them why it's important. It, you know, I, I don't know. It, there's value in knowing who will care about it and then getting those people to work with you. I'm just thinking like, you know, if you don't have support for this project, then you're probably going to have a tough time working on it for 40 hours or whatever, you know? So that to me immediately means that you're kind of doing this, you know, on the weekend or outside of work or sneaking around to do it. Yeah. And that's, that's not good either. All right. How about, so wait, how do you gather support then? I guess you just, Oh, you mean, so, so donuts. No, I, donuts. I mean, so I guess to to your point, like you shouldn't be spending a ton of time on the nights and weekends unless you're just super passionate about it. But like I said, you know, even even an iPad app or something like that that can just kind of mock up something, right, in a pretty mm-hmm. way that looks attractive that will show your idea. If you can't get it across with a simple mock up, then maybe you need to refine your idea before you even take it any further, right? Yeah, and maybe um, listen to what the reservations are. Like, if they don't want to do it because they don't want to maintain it, then show how easy it is to maintain it. If they don't want to do it because, um, you know, it's a financial risk, then find a way to do it without that risk. Yeah, all all very good points. All right, let's move on to how to grow a system. Well, grow it. A little bit of water. Yep, some sunshine. Yep. Had you guys, um, they mentioned spiral milestones. I've never heard that term before, but I thought it was kind of interesting. You imagine like starting in the center and kind of going around and having, you know, these milestones either go more often or less often. I wasn't really sure which one it was. I don't think I read that in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I, I'm going to have to Google this. I don't recall that either, but I, I've never heard of it. The, oh, no, it was uh, the spiral development. Um, but no, I don't, uh, I, I, I never heard of it described that way before. It sounds like it's somewhere between waterfall and agile. I mean, so you have like little milestones that are, you know, various points apart. This reminded me a lot of what we always talk about is iteration, right? Like they, they equated it to a bridge, right? Like a software is not a bridge. A bridge has to be complete before you can use it. 
software, you can add parts to it as you go along that make it more and more valuable over time. And that is how you should grow it. You should have your vision of where you want it to be, but you should take the steps to grow it slowly and get it, or maybe not even slowly, but not just try and be like, hey, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to put anything out there until this whole thing's done, right? He makes the analogy of, of a baby, right? Like every day that baby is growing, that child is growing and learning something and, and still able to do things, but you know, it's like a constant iteration every day, right? Whereas, like you said, the bridge is not – you can't you – can't, call software you know use software uh i'm sorry you can't use a bridge as an analogy to software because the bridge isn't a bridge until it's complete yep before that it's just you know a piece of junk i don't know what would you call it a ramp i I did look up the spiral (laughs) model by the way and um, if you've ever had one of those horrible like management training sessions and you've seen this it's basically you start out in one quadrant like determine objectives you go around the wheel identify development plan you know and it just kind of keeps cycling and as the the circles get bigger you know you end up doing more stuff until finally you're done but very waterfally yeah i mean one thing that he said and this kind of goes to what we've said i don't know how many times on here i would even go further and state it is a law of nature no large complex system can be implemented from scratch it can only be evolved from a simple system to a complex system in a series of intentional steps and that is completely true. If you ever have a boss that's like, we're totally replacing these five systems with these 10 systems that we picked out, man, and they say that it's going live on, you know, one year from today, uh, run. <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's not going to happen. You can't do it. What you do is you slowly integrate new systems and you slowly phase out old systems or you slowly grow software. You Look at ideas, look at ideas, sorry to interrupt, but look at ideas from students who are, you know, maybe in whatever their program is, like a final, you know, a senior project or, you know, their uh, uh, thesis or whatever. They they develop some idea there, right? And, you know, regardless of how well that idea is received at that time, you know, they, they start iterating on that idea until now it becomes a big thing. Mm-hmm. There's two big examples that come to mind. Facebook. Um, actually, okay, fine. There's three examples that come to mind. <laughs> Wait, you you <laughs> forgot Facebook? Well, I was thinking I was thinking of Linux. That okay. was that was the first one that came to mind. Okay. And then you know, thinking outside of the box, uh, coincidentally, FedEx. Right. There's two ideas that that started out like FedEx was originally, um, if I remember right. The uh, guy who started it, it was like a Harvard dissertation that he gave or, or you know, theory, ma- master's theory, theory or something. I forget what it was. It, it was an assignment in school. Let's put it that way. Hmm. And and if I remember right, he actually failed the assignment. And now huh. it's, you know, a major company. Oh, that's right? cool. I didn't know that. So, so you know, those are those are small ideas that started out as just a simple classroom assignment that then grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. To to you know big things that they are today, right? That's really cool. I didn't know that. I'm actually on FedEx's about page right now. It's kind of cool. I think there's a book that's pretty nifty. But yeah, I mean even Facebook, right? Like it started out as a hot or not type thing, and he just started growing it. Like it was a college 
basically chat site at one point and then it was oh well let's open this up to more people let's build a platform that other people can hook into like facebook wasn't an overnight thing it did not grow into the multi-billion dollar thing it did because he said no 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 i have this idea we can't put anything out until we're all done with it right right so you mean there's a facebook before farmville right i just kind of assumed they just launched at the same time i mean it's it's one of the things that i think stops some people with really great ideas from ever accomplishing them is oh you know uh sorry no, go ahead i just got excited uh i remembered when images was an app it was a facebook app that was separate from the rest so if you wanted to upload photos oh. and whatnot you had to use a little um like the like the plugin whatever wow and now thanks to their constant iteration we have react i mean seriously and they open sourced it and graphql oh yeah does that count as embedding <laughs> No. no, no, that's yeah. greatness. The point being, though, is that like, yeah, you you can't you can't start out with an end goal in mind of it being something big, and it never happens that way. You you can't show me one example. You know, Windows has been a constant evolution over the past what uh, twenty thirty years now, until it's gotten gotten to be you know the behemoth that it is that still provides you know backwards compatibility for stuff from 10 years ago right like yeah you know it's a constant evolution so you have to just keep iterating on it yep so how to communicate well well i could probably improve on this one i prefer satire oh if you could (laughs) slip some funny things and it keeps me awake (laughs) Uh, no, uh, really, um, I, you didn't really t- uh, talk about this so much, but some things I wanted to kind of add here are basically trying to keep conversations in tickets so that they're searchable, viewable by people who don't have access to your email. Um, if you do do it in email, you know, use a good um, subject line, make it searchable because, man, there's so many emails fly around, they get lost. And so the closer you can keep the things you're saying to like 140 characters or even, you know, broken up or, or even better in somewhere like a wiki or a ticket, the better because there's just too much flying, information flying around to keep it in your head all at once. Yeah, I mean, he, he makes a great point that, you know, part of the problem that makes communication so hard is that the, the, the whole process is flawed because the person that you're trying to communicate with, they're not working hard to try to understand you. Right. And, and to your point about the 140 characters, like, you know, I have a good friend that I used to work with that he and I had exact opposite approaches on things, especially when it came to emails, because, you know, I was, I would take the point of view of, well, you know, if I'm only going to grab your, your, if I'm only going to get 30 seconds of your time, let me focus you in on, here's the thing that I want to, you know, say, right. Whereas he would take the approach of, well, if I'm going to get any of your time, then I want you to have all of the information. So, you know, mine would be a paragraph, his would be a book. And, you know, it was like, well, I, I, I understood his point of view, right? Because if you're, if you're, especially if you're talking to like, you know, if this email, imagine if this email was going to like a C-level exec, right? They're only going to read but so many emails from me, Right. So his point was, well, just give them all the information that they have so, you know, that you have so that they can have it to evaluate it right then and there rather than trying to have a discourse with them over several. It's like information overload. Yeah, it's kind of the way I took it, though. 
You ever get someone who uh, who will forge you like a you know seventeen email long chain like here catch up right yeah I don't know oh, I, yeah, like, I, I get why they're not gonna you know be able to really summarize that easily but man going through there's something about scrolling to the bottom and reading up that's just painful I guess I guess though the takeaway from that um you know from that that exchange with my friend was that like it did kind of make me become more um verbose yeah okay fine. We'll call it verbose. <laughs> yeah, see, it's funny because I actually feel differently about it. So a lot of times now, like when I write important emails, like most of my emails, they're basically like glorified chat. You know, they're short, they're one sentence, whatever. But the ones where I'm actually trying to express something now, I'll actually do something like have a header that's, you know, five words saying, here's what I think we should do. And then I'll have another header down below that says, you know, other options or something. So rather than providing, you know, three paragraphs kind of talking about this and that and whatever, I try to kind of present the information in the way that I think they're looking to, to hear it. And a lot of times I'll even do something like, in a nutshell, here's my two sentence saying, let's do this. Now, here's the details that says how I got to that conclusion. Yeah, I think honestly, formatting, what, like what you said, having like headings, that can be huge. Oh, yeah, I definitely try to do that. Like if, if, if you say, this is what I think we should do, and then a couple bullet points, right? Quick reads. Something that they can skim with their eyes and get the gist of the whole thing. And then, like you said, if you want to throw the details down at the bottom because now you've grabbed their interest, perfect. But but if you literally just have blobs of text everywhere, like somebody – I know we've all done it, right? Like you open an email and you're like, I don't have time to read this right now. Right. But yeah. if there had been a, uh, a heading to – up there that had something that was attention grabbing a couple bullet points another heading to and a couple bullet points chances are you would take the time because your eyes can easily hit those points right and and, i mean one of the things that he said in this chapter that i really agreed with is if he had something important to communicate he would try and talk about it he would have a white paper that he could hand out and then he might also have a presentation, you know, a PowerPointer type type thing. And I think that's important because everybody is stimulated in different ways. Some people are visual learners, some people are audible, some people like to just read things, right? And so having things prepared in that way if it's important enough to to warrant that amount of work can be super important. But I mean, that assumes that the the problem itself warrants yes that type of thing. Yeah. Like a like a presentation. I mean, come on. If I'm just sending you an email, I, I don't want to do a presentation. Right. But I know that there have been times where I've sent emails that were the subject matter itself was already complicated. Right. Right. And so now I'm trying to convey very complicated. T- topics you know information about very complicated inf- you know topics and like he says you know, the reader or listener they're not working as hard to understand it necessarily right and so there are times where like i'll get responses back and think man it just went completely over their head like all of that effort that i put in there to try to be clear to explain it as clear as i could and and to avoid confusion and it feels like it was off or not. And then I know that there have been times where I've been guilty of getting that response and then completely missing their point because it's too much to read. It's too much to take in and especially out of context, right? Like when you are the developer and you're in the code and you're in the problem, 
it's very easy because you are immersed in that world, right? Now, you're trying to recreate that world for somebody that's not immersed in it, and it's really hard to do that in a way that doesn't bore someone to tears, right? Like, I, I, And I'm sorry, but okay, that's... Okay, so you don't like my emails, okay. <laughs> I actually have a problem when I'm writing emails like that because I'll look at it and go, man, nobody's going to read this, right? Like, it, They're going to open this email and go, oh, man, they're going to read the first sentence and be like, Man, I really don't even want to have to try and figure out what's what's going on here. But but where I thought you were going to go with this though is that you you were talking about uh, sometimes you're so immersed in it, right? And difficulty to um, you know convey that. But there have been times format. where like when the response comes back, you're too involved in whatever your you know that problem is that you're not taking a step back to see their response the way they they saw it, right? Because and that's where I meant like there have been times where I've gotten responses that, you know, it took me several reads before I was like, oh, wait a minute. I see what they're getting at now. Right. right? Because I was too deep. I was too lost in the weeds. Right. And it took me a while to like step back out and, and come back out. So there, there are definitely times where like I'll read that response multiple times, you yeah. know, trying to make heads or tails of it. Yeah. When I write a long email like that, um, a lot of times what I'm really saying is, I have an impossible problem. I can think of two solutions and they're both bad. <laughs> and so what I'm trying to do now is to basically have that, exactly what I said, be the first first sentence or two. Like, I have a problem. I don't know how to solve it. You know, see more details below. Because that, that gives the person, you know, actionability. It gives, you know, the, your boss or whoever is reading it something to respond to. And if they want to dive deeper on either of those solutions, you know, they've got the information below and they can kind of skim or hop around to what they need to. But ultimately, the, your ask is right there, front and center, and with its own header. That's fantastic well, advice, actually. That, that really is. And it's a great segue into the next section, which is how to tell people things they don't want to hear. In <laughs> uh, <and> email. <laughs> with headers. Right? Yeah. I mean, seriously. Unfortunately, it's been proven time and time again. Sales copy on pages is usually just kind of bam in your face type stuff. And it affects you psychologically. Anyways. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the points that he makes here is exactly to what Joe was saying is the best way to tell someone about a problem is to offer a solution at the same time. Yep. That was the one yep. sentence I highlighted in this entire area. Really? Yep. <clears throat> yeah I, I mean i've heard some stuff in like management type training before about you know give them a situation give them the thing that happened give them what they did and give them the outcome and blah 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 and oh and compliment them at the same time but really you know i, I feel like keeping it kind of clinical if it's like if it's really bad news then just keep it short and say i we're not going to be able to launch this may 1st but you look or, nice today. I'm not going to be able to do this ticket. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awkward. No, man. When oh, I, I thought when I was I supposed to compliment crying, them. I'm a mess. I I am not a pretty crier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Why? Why? Why did we go there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I will say it is often better to just suck it up and do it, right? Like, unpleasant things in life, period. It's better to just get them out of the way so that they're not weighing on you. And you just do it in the in the best way possible. You know, hey, the schedule's going to have to slip. We're not going to make it. So we've become a yep. Nike commercial. Just do it. 
That's shit. right. All right. You know, I, I do with this with them. Like if I'm, you know, like if I'm legitimately sick or some emergency or something happened, like a lot of times I'll hem and haw about the email that I'm writing say, I have to miss work tomorrow. Um, you know, I'm really sorry. Like, and I'll write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And then ultimately at the end, I'll just delete it all and say, I have to miss tomorrow. Yeah, done. <laughs> right. You know, send me an email if you need anything. Yeah, I mean, that's really the short and the sweet is it. If they want more detail, they'll ask, right? Don't inundate people with detail on, on especially uncomfortable topics uh, unless they want it. And if they want it, give it to them. Yeah, I'm always tempted to be like, listen, I had 101 fever from 5 to 7, then it went up to 100.5, <laughs> and I don't really want to work today because, you know, no, man, just you're sick. <laughs> That's all they care about. Right, yeah. Uh, no, but really, I had diarrhea at 323, <laughs> and again at 347. I got 99 problems, but Joe's diarrhea isn't one. <laughs> it is all right. now. <laughs> Apparently. All right. How to deal with managerial myths. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know what? There are, uh, is this the one where there are a bunch of them? Yeah, let me open this page. Yeah. yeah. There are, the, I thought these were really the good. The so points I highlighted More documentation is always better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They want it, but they don't want to spend any time on right. it. Right. <laughs> and, and another thing he didn't even mention. <laughs> Definitely we, include that documentation, though. We talked about earlier is a lot of times that documentation will get stale, and that's also a problem, right? Yep. You know, I've actually uh, come around to that, the, that, uh, the idea that, you know, sometimes they're, you know, oh, okay, I'm doing a horrible job of explaining this. What was that <laughs> section on how to communicate well? So... <laughs> You know, wikis are pre- prevalent now, right? You know, it's really easy to to have a wiki in your uh, for your organization, and you know, you can put a lot of great information in there. But sometimes, I've kind of come to the opinion that you know what would be even better than that wiki. That wiki would be great, definitely for people who don't have access to the code. But for those that do, a really good readme right there next to the project uh, yeah. goes yep. a long way. Yeah, and it, and it, Man, I like readbees in every folder. Oh yeah. Well, whatever. My point being is like you know that like put put the documentation there for the developer and not in just the wiki because then to your point about the wiki growing stale, yeah, or the documentation growing stale, like then it could definitely happen, right? Yeah. Programmers can be equated. Nope. Uh, what? Different people have different strengths. You know, you can't just say, "Hey, take uh, you know Sue off this and put Bobby on it," and uh, let's not adjust any of the timelines. <laughs> But as yeah. a manager, I have this this project that's going to take X amount of time, and if I can add more developers to it, then I can reduce that amount of time. Yeah, the swim lines in Jira are all the same, you know. It's, it says programmer. Dude, this one, this one that you just read, I actually almost dropped my Kindle when I when I read it. <laughs> you cannot, everybody, hear this. You cannot scale a team up at the tail end of a project and expect it to go faster. As a matter of fact, what you should expect is that it's going to slow to a snail's pace because now the people that were actually getting work done now have to bring everybody else up to speed on something that they're going to have no clue about. Trying to double the size of a team or triple or quadruple the size of a team when you're already late on a project will not help the project. I well, it am, depends. Uh, well, let's say mm. I, I do largely agree with you. Okay, I, I but may be, if you're I may if be you're over. like 
you know, early into the project and, you know, yeah, we're late, you know, we, we were planning to have it done in, you know, four months, but we now see it's going to be six months. Yeah. You know, you got enough time to bring a couple more people in, you know, it, it might not help you, uh, you know, get, get any further. You might still be four months long, but just in case if there's additional problems that come up. Yeah. So yeah, if if you're what you're describing is like you've got two weeks left, I'm totally on board. Yeah. I mean, even even a month left in a lot of cases. So I equate this almost to to the overhead of having dual processor systems, right? When you have two processors, your system's not twice as fast. What? It might be That's what that turbo buttons for you know, it might be it <laughs> might be hundred and fifty percent faster than or or fifty percent faster than just one processor, right? There's overhead in managing resources. And it's even more true in the case with people. And so and I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everything should just have one person working on it or two people. It, please I, I'm not trying to go to extremes here. But People that believe that that programmers are just cogs that can be plugged into situations, yeah, that is an incorrect assessment of how things work. I agree. So, so I think the takeaway is to replace your programmers with SSDs. <laughs> yes. All right. Resources can be added to a late project to speed it up. We already covered that. It is possible to estimate software development reliably. Nope. It's what? not even theoretically possible. <laughs> until all, quantum, all, we, all we can say is we're going to try hey until quantum computing comes out which apparently they've made steps for, wait right? no wait <laughs> that's going to make so, estimating software development absolutely man they could do all the permutations we, we won't ever have to think again right it'll either take one day two day three days it'll just be like the <laughs> exactly. number of days yeah. <laughs> it'll yeah, be from test? one to n i do like to say that you know the smaller task is the more accurate your um your estimates can be um, but if Visual Studio starts crashing on you, then oh, uh, you know sometimes that doesn't work out so well. Even if you know exactly what you need to do, you know what to type. Uh, I, I will agree though with wh- where you're going with that. Those smaller tasks are definitely easier. Yeah. You know. Um, all right. Programmers' productivity can be measured in terms of some simple metric like lines of code. God. So. Y- you remember the days when people actually got paid per lines of code like that actually happened? I never saw that. Yeah. Uh, tickets, though, I, I, I would see, it. you know, like, so-and-so closed 11 tickets. And, like, they wrote those tickets. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was really one <laughs> ticket that they broke into 12 pieces. Yeah. Man. No, I've, I've, never, I've never seen lines of code as, like, any kind of valuable metric ever. I mean, like, I, it, yeah, it goes kind of like the lo- what uh, Joe was saying about, like, you know, the number of tickets closed. Like, who cares? By the way, yeah, if if anybody ever thinks it's a great idea to report on on how well you're doing on tickets and all that, you can almost guarantee that's going to be gamed in some way, right? Because oh yeah, well, lines of code is the same way. Yeah, I I mean it. it those kind of statistics don't matter unless somebody's really paying attention to what those tickets have in them, right? But then again, every ticket has its own weight and in its own you know, life really like you get into it and you think, Oh, this one's going to be easy. And then you get into the system. You're like, Oh man, this, this is not a five point ticket, right? This is, you just, it's not a realistic way to do things. And it's not just programmers either. I worked somewhere where, um, QA was kind of incentivized to find tickets and it was, um, it was kind of weird for them because basically the more tickets they found, the better. So at the end of the release cycle, 
even if the product that went out was totally crap and QA did a terrible job, they could, they always had the defense of saying, well, I wrote a thousand tickets and it was still crap. So obviously the programming was terrible. But that's not really the case, you know, because everyone was incentivized to write more tickets. So there were lots of junk tickets. Right. And they had the uh, the effect of basically grammar. masking the true quality. Yeah, they, they could be like little things like grammar or, yep. you know, not really functional things that are you know, more important. But like, oh, this is two pixels off. Yeah, I think the key really is having everybody on board with what the vision is, right? Yep. Let's try and get towards what the goal is. And and let's all do it in a collaborative way, right? If if you're focusing on metrics on things that really do not matter, like number of tickets opened or number of tickets closed, you're doing things wrong. Period. Yep. The same place um you were uh there was a reverse incentive for the programmer, so your team would show up with the number of tickets. And so if a QA person would write a ticket, like you would like rush down there to talk to them, like try to talk them out of it, see if you can hurry them and squeak that in before they wrote that ticket. And then um, they eventually got to the point where they would show the names of the people who had like the most tickets. And so, man, if you were the person who was on that, you know, the hot chart, the idea they said was basically if, you know, if you could help that person or you saw that person had, you know, the most tickets and you can kind of, you know, it was highlighting the problem so that people could help out, but it really had the effect of like feeling like you had like the evil eye of Soren on you as you walked around the hallway. <laughs> you know, like you have eleven tickets. How dare you get coffee, man? That's that is no way to motivate because that also let, let's be fair, right? That's going to lead to sloppiness. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get these tickets out of my pile, and you know, you're not going to be as thorough. I yeah, and close. it really did encourage sandbagging. Like you say, oh, you know what? I can't do all eleven tickets. You're gonna have to reassign them, and you keep, you know, you fight like hell for the easiest tickets, and then you make sure that you're able to deliver them, you know, on the times that you estimated. That's ridiculous. And that's how you get ahead in that system. Yeah, I, I hate that. Yeah. All right. So, last but not least, how to deal with temporary organizational chaos? Temporary. First, hope it's temporary. Right. Yeah, so well, I mean, he makes a he's going along from the point of view of you know that within your organization, sometimes there are things like layoffs or buyouts or IPOs or firings or hirings. So it's not necessarily like the the chaos isn't necessarily bad, right? 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 You know, an IPO is a big deal, yep. right? That that could be a good thing for your company. Hirings could be a good a buyout could be a good thing. You know, it doesn't have to be bad. But the point is, is that you know, there's a lot of commotion going on thank you yeah yeah it the one thing that he says here and this is actually the reason why i love what we do engineers have the power to create and sustain that is so true and that is really kind of the power behind what we do is it's easy to show value because you we do we create things and so it's easy to kind of rise above and, and become important even when there's chaos going on yeah, I mean, he, we've made this, um, we've commented on this before because he's definitely opinionated on the engineer versus the non-engineer, right? And, and makes he says that you know non-engineers cannot create or sustain anything without an engineer, and it's kind of like, eh. all right, you know, I've definitely known some people that were not, you know, engineers or software developers by trade. But they knew enough around it to hack something into place to create something that got a, a business up and going. Yep. Right. And, you know, 
were able to you know hire on additional teams and whatnot. So it it, it was. I, it just felt it just felt unfair. This is a little arrogant, sort of towards you know engineers being uh, above and beyond everybody else. Which is, yeah, it feel it felt kind of elitist, and that's yeah. I mean we've talked about it before, but yeah, I I didn't really agree with it. I mean the one, I, I guess my one takeaway from this that I actually did appreciate is the fact that when there is chaos, continue doing what you do. It you know create things add value and that will show through right and you might get fired but if you are truly good at what you do and you are good at adding value then it's not going to be hard for you to pick up somewhere else and go do that somewhere else as well right but what about his point though that he says that uh um you know if during all this commotion right someone comes up to you to create something that you think is just stupid that you should or just legal. smile and nod and, you know, go along with it until they walk away and then just ignore it. And if you are a leader, you should tell your team to ignore it, to ignore all that nonsense too. Like That's pushing <laughs> it, right? I mean, uh, I guess it depends on what kind of position of power you're in. Like that's And who the <laughs> position is that's making the stupid comment right. or, you know, the comment that you feel is stupid. I, I there, There's so many, yeah, I... When I read that, I was like, I, I don't even know where to go with this. Because, I mean, obviously, if somebody comes and asks you to do something that you just know you shouldn't be doing, yeah, then it's pretty common sense, right? But uh, I don't Listen, know. we're only going to skim a couple pennies for every transaction. <laughs> yep. I saw this in Superman. This, this works great. Uh, like, you know, the feds are coming tomorrow. If they ask about me... <laughs> then I tell them you never heard of me. I never worked here. You don't know what's going on. And hey, then, who's that? Uh, you know, call me afterwards. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really feel great about what that last part was. So. <laughs> yeah, we, I'm sure we've all worked places that have done things. But I, I've seen like you know credit cards stored in the clear or CVVs in the database or you know lots of crappy stuff. But that's I, not really organizational chaos. But there's definitely been times when there's been an incentive to do, you know, to cut a corner or do, do things the wrong way or whatever. And you just got to kind of stay on your ground. And if you get fired, then uh, that place sucked anyway. Well, <laughs> I, I kind of like the approach that whenever, whenever I've been in situations kind of like that, and it may not be because of like organizational chaos, but just someone comes up with, to you with an idea. And generally what I think that you're really describing there is someone is going, they're coming to you with this, you know, idea that you might think is stupid because really what's happening is they're trying to subvert the process. Right. And so in that situation, I'm just like, you know, yeah, we'll put a ticket in and it can get prioritized, you know, like everything else. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if it makes it, it makes it, if it doesn't, you know, I might you not know, that a part, good but. example is breaking the chain. Basically, you have you know either your buddy or someone from uh, you know under you know someone outside of your tree kind of trying to slip little favors in. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's kind of stuff that happens with the organizational chaos. Yeah, that's yep. definitely yeah uh, all the time. Especially it's it's rough when um like the things they want aren't stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know? it, it's both ways. Great right. Yeah. Great point. Yeah, you know, the, hey, we know this thing that will make the company an extra twenty percent in revenue. Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll dude. If, if I do that, I'm gonna get shot. 
on site, so I can't do that right now. Wait, if you make 20% more in revenue for the company, you're going to get shot on site? If you yeah. work on something that wasn't I tell you approved. what, if you do know of something that can make an extra 20%, you just go ahead and do it. <laughs> right? Oh, dude, that is not the case. No. <laughs> and you know it. You get fired. There are absolutely organizations that, uh, yeah, their priorities aren't necessarily tied to revenue, strangely enough. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. All right. Well, that uh, that that'll conclude that uh, take on how to be a programmer by Robert L. Reed. So that leads us into Alan's favorite portion of the show. This is the tip of the week. That's right. <laughs> so um, I I mentioned that for any of the self taught developers out there, uh, I would have a tip for you, and so. I, I got two for you. One is, and these there will be links to both of these in the um, um, the show notes. But the first one is this really great um, course uh, on Plural Site that that a friend of ours pointed us to on React with Relay and GraphQL and Flux, and it is. I'm the one who pointed us to that, aren't I? No, really? No, it's John. No. Oh, it was John. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Look who look who tried to take credit. My wow. bad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I giveth credit to John and I take it the way. Apparently. <laughs> but uh you know, I mean it's a really great a great uh course. You know, again, you know, you have to be willing to um watch the course on something JavaScript related. So if you know, if that's not your forte, then you know, maybe you're not interested. But uh one of the things that I did like about it is just the speaker himself, like the presenter himself, he does a great job like of of presenting the material through this course. Um so it, it was just it was a well put together course. I think you'd really like it. We'll have a link to that one in the show notes. But then also wanted to give a link to and this one came up in the Slack channel. Um actually a link to a specific video and, and it came up but um to a YouTube video but the link that we're going to have in our show notes is for the overall contributor, which is the MIT Open Courseware, and there's just some great content. And like, it's one of those things, sources of uh, content that you just kind of forget about every now and then. And then someone will be like, "Oh, well, hey, I like this video." And they're like, "Oh yeah, I forgot they were doing that." And then you go back and you look through it, and and there's just this treasure of great content out there. Yeah. So we'll we'll have those two links. Uh, out there for you to take a look at yeah and on the uh on his first one the react one the guy's use of vi or vim or whatever you want to call it <laughs> it, it makes you really want to learn that ide because that dude just breezes through wait a minute it. wait a minute no i will not ever support that statement that vim. you just said vim. vi is not an ide Oh no, you're right. It's a text editor. It's a text editor. But man, that guy's so good in it. It's it's kind of ridiculous to watch him just go through it. But yeah, I totally agree. It was an excellent course. All right, so my tip of the week is open Roset. So this is SQL Server specific. If you ever wanted to say create a table, and you wanted to do it by executing a stored proc. So like think of of something in the case where like if you do a select into new table from existing table, right? That's something that you do a lot in SQL Server, especially if you're used to transforming data or moving data around. 
Well, it's kind of frustrating because you can't do like an exec into from a stored proc to build a table on the fly. What you can do is you could do a select into my new table from open row set. So you could use open row set to open a connection to that same server and to that same database. You have to pass in the connection type string and then the actual connection string itself. But then you could just exec the stored proc that you want and the results of that would get inserted into a new table. So if you ever have the need to generate a table based off of stored procedures results or, or even do any number of other things, you can use open row set as kind of your way to trick SQL Server into doing what you want. And we will have a snippet example up on the show notes. So if you want to see how that's done, just uh, click the link in the show notes here or in the notes here and go up to the site and take a look. Yep, and uh, now it's time for my tip. So I, I, I well, hold on, real quick, real quick. Um, if because if I remember right too, that's also um, the only way that you can um, make sure I use my wording correctly. Here. It's the only way that you can bulk update is through open row row set, like or um, you're talking about like a BCP. No, um, like if you wanted to do if you wanted to do maybe bulk update is the wrong way to phrase that. If you wanted to do like a certain count at a time, like, you know, a thousand at a time, like you could bulk insert. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure that like it, but, but it has, it's file specific though. Um, it oh, has so to be. You were talking about bulk copy then. Like, like if you wanted to, okay, let's say you had a million records, uh-huh. right? And you wanted to bulk insert that, then you can easily do an insert statement and say like, you know, uh, well, not easily, but you can you could do that over, you know, whatever, uh, you know, say a thousand at a time if you wanted to do that. For open row set, you can do the similar thing, but at a, at on an update because you can't do updates in in bulk like that. Hmm. I don't. Or know. batch might be a better way to describe what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look <clears> into that. So maybe that'll be our next tip. We'll have to look it up. All right. So, uh, yeah, my tip is, I don't remember if we mentioned this last time or not, but it's Code Wars, which is an awesome site for learning the program and um, solving the, the kind of problems that you typically see in like interviews. And we actually have a clan on there, Coding Blocks, and uh, Carl from MS Dev Show is currently at the top of that list. So uh, you guys should join and uh, knock him down a peg. Sorry, Carl. <laughs> oh, by the way, I didn't find this out until after I've been in there playing around. If you do it in the order that it presents them to you, you won't get points that fast. You actually yeah. have to go over the more difficult ones, and that's why I spent my time just kind of going step by step. Yeah, don't do that. Get the ones that will get you some points. If you I, want points. I haven't Sometimes tried this you want yet. An easy one. It's, oh, it's kind of it. fun. It, it's I had more fun than I thought I would. Really? <laughs> yeah. It, and, our, and our clan is coding space blocks, right? Yep. So if you want to join our little group of people so that you can compete freely with us, coding space blocks for your clan. Yeah, hmm. I, I solved like, uh, I think like three or four problems and I realized I hadn't gone up a level. I'm like, what the heck? And it's because I was doing all easier problems. Same thing. And, uh, they were they were interesting problems though. They were all, you know, kind of fun, not too hard, but they were definitely still head scratchers. You know, you know what I liked about it, Joe, was the fact that you cannot see the solutions beforehand unless you kind of want to forfeit the problem. Mm-hmm. So you have to code up what your solution is 
And after you do, you get to see everybody's and you actually get to see the top rated ones that people voted up. Right now, one thing I will caution against, because this is fun. This is like competitive stack overflow. Sort of, sort of. It's more just interesting challenges to do. But the thing that is both kind of cool and slightly annoying is like, I think I commented on ones. I was like, dude, there's no type checking in this at all. He's like, dude, this is a, this is just a little thing to try and get this solution. Like this is definitely not production ready code. So that's one thing to keep so in mind. So in other words, you can't use like flow JS in your. Uh, right. <laughs> no, but it, it is something to keep in mind, right? Like some of the solutions you see, it's not like you want to copy and paste these things and stick it in your production code because these people are little, in some cases, are just trying to do the most clever thing ever, even though the performance is going to be, you know, quadratic, quadratic, right? It, it could just be terrible. So, quadratic, quadratic. Right. So... So it's just, I think you're just describing exponential. Yeah. Something like that. No, but it's just, know. it's just, I don't know. It's fun to kind of see, to do the challenges and also see the other solutions that people come up with. So it's definitely worth a spin. Hmm. Yeah. A good example is um uh, the one that I did, uh, which was to basically convert a string to Morse code. And they actually provide the dictionary that, you know, you give it a character, you get the Morse code back. And you kind of had to do something special with the spaces, but it wasn't too too hard at all, and it was just kind of fun. And uh, I felt like a better program afterwards. That's cool. All right, all right. Well, like I said, that wraps up uh, this show on uh, how to be a programmer. So we hope you know now, and <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> you can tell your boss, "I now know how to be an advanced programmer." Yeah, that's it. That's so amazing. that'll help you in your negotiations. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, we'll have all the show notes uh, ready for you. But uh, like always, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And if you haven't already, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you uh, happen to find our podcast. And uh, you know, if you want to head over to www codingblocks.net slash review to find uh, easy links to either of those. Uh, you know, Use that too. Yeah, we totally didn't beg this episode. What's that about? I know, I forgot. I uh, feel like we should beg now. Please, 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 please go leave us a review. <laughs> that, that would be amazing. Alright, beg over. End beg. Alright, also visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find all our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And visit us at, oh, damn, I did that again. <laughs> How do I not know this by now? And, and then, <laughs> if you haven't visited us at codingblocks.net, let's go ahead and visit us at codingblocks.net. <laughs> hey, That's you know right. what we haven't done? We haven't begged for uh, reviews. <laughs> are we going backwards now? Yes, we are. <laughs> You're listening to <laughs> episode one. So, uh, You're listening to Joe Struggle. Uh, so uh, send us some email at comments at Coding Blocks and uh, follow us on Twitter. And if you, really, if you just go to CodingBlocks.net, we have links to Twitter, to Facebook. We should have one to Slack. That's probably a good idea. And uh, I mean, Code Wars too. And uh, just, uh, yeah, we're everywhere. So um, however you want to communicate, we are probably there and we want to hear from you. Hey, and if you find somewhere where we're not that you think we should be, let us know. Drop us a line. Yep. Email us. Or at us. Oh, what? Ooh. Man, uh, tweet us jokes too. Uh, Rebecca Marquis was, um, yeah, just tweeted us one and it was awesome and we forgot to read it. But yeah, send us jokes. We love it. Hey, wait, what's this joke? Read it. We're not done. Oh, yet. I'm looking. <clears throat> I think I read it the other day and it was pretty good. Hold on, where'd it go? Oh. It was something about meat, right? 
Oh, yeah. gosh. I know the one you're talking well, about. I got it. I got it. I got it. Nobody's right. going to find it. Here we go. I have it. I found it. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I went to the butcher's, and I bet him 50 pounds that he couldn't reach the meat off the top shelf. He said, no, the stakes are way too high. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Rebecca. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that that was a great. I also liked the the retweet that Joe did. And I felt like this was uh um I guess it was Mike Ash that originally tweeted it, but I guess I think I think I really liked it a little bit more because it had Joe's name in it that Joe Joe's code has 20 bugs. Oh yeah. If Joe fixes 2 bugs per hour for 8 hours, how many bugs does Joe's code now have? 40 answer 27 <laughs> so how do they know <laughs> somebody spying on me it's so true the NSA yeah. we got them after us already oh, I loved that one uh, alright that's it good See night you.